Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. And this is one of those special episodes in which the ranking project takes center stage. Oh, yes, it is time for the final state of the rankings of all 66 of Agatha Christie's mystery novels. It is very bittersweet to be doing this episode without my late and extremely lamented partner, Catherine Brobeck. We did a state of the rankings episode at the end of every year of this podcast, but it is time now that the project has been completed to do one more. And fortunately, I have a friend of the podcast brave enough to join me in conversation about those rankings one of our very best friends over the years. We have relied on this person time and time again. I am speaking of John Curran, author of Agatha Christie's Secret Notebooks, just one of the oracles we have out there among the pantheon of agathologists who exist in the world. I have posted the rankings grid to the podcast's Twitter account at All About the Dame and to our Instagram account at All About Agatha. I'm also going to throw it on our Facebook page as well, even though I do not regularly update the podcast's Facebook page. It does still exist. So if you would like to follow along, there is a before and after of the grid, which reflects the conversation that John and I are about to have. But before I get to that conversation, I would like to do a little bit of housekeeping or maybe a lot of housekeeping because I have some matters to run through that have cropped up since my last novel episode, which was a while ago at this point when I discussed Curtin with Linda Brobeck, Catherine's mother. I'm not going to start with Curtin, however, because I would like to go in reverse chronological order, starting with the most recent episode on which I goofed. This is going to be the errata portion of the housekeeping matters that we have to attend to here. So in the episode I did on the new Miss Marple collection, I spoke about that with my good friend Brad Friedman. We highlighted this reference in Gene Kwok's short story, The Jade Empress, to a Miss Marple short story that involved the murderer dressing up as a member of the help and thereby evading observation. And Brad and I could not think of a Miss Marple story in which that happened. We could think of many Poirot stories. We could think of Miss Marple short stories in which there had been costuming as to the help, but not in the service of a murder plot. And to give us the little bit of credit that we deserve, we kind of realized in the moment that we probably just weren't thinking of the Miss Marple short story Jean Kwok was referencing because she was indeed referencing a Miss Marple short story. And that would be Miss Marple tells a story. Many, many, many of you contacted me to let me know about this, as you should have. So I just want to give Jean Kwok her due. That was not a reference to a Miss Marple short story that doesn't exist. She was referencing part of the Agatha Christie canon. And then I also got an interesting comment about another story within that collection, Miss Marple Takes Manhattan by Alyssa Cole. Here's what this listener had to say about that. 
In your discussion of Miss Marple Takes Manhattan, you discuss her getting into a sitcom-style fight over sales items at Gimbal's. This, I think, is a reference to Sanctuary, where she and Bunch go to London for the white sales, actually to set up a scheme to catch the bad guy, and they emerge from the sale rather the worse for wear, clasping parcels of hardly one household linens. Those last two phrases are quoted directly from the Christie text. And this listener continues, so Miss Marple is a veteran of the bargain rack wars. And that is a reference that I missed for the very simple reason that we have not yet covered Sanctuary on this podcast. That is the final Miss Marple short story to be covered at some point in the not too distant future. We've still got one more to go, folks. But that was a great catch. Well spotted, listener. Okay, now on to the podcast's curtain episode. This is probably the most important error that I need to correct because I made a big deal of this on the curtain episode in the first half of that episode before Linda came on. This is my mistake, not Linda's. I talked about how there was this obituary written in the New York Times for our dear Belgian detective, Hercule Poirot which was actually published before Curtin itself was published. Many of you wrote in to express your surprise about that. But I also made the point that Agatha Christie herself, when she passed away, did not seem to merit an obituary for her own passing in the New York Times in early 1976. And the reason I said that is that the New York Times has this great search engine where you can look up anything in their archives. Well, <laughs> it turns out that perhaps that search engine is not as great as I thought it was. It's not perfect at any rate, because there was an obituary published for Dame Agatha Christie in the January 13th, 1976 edition of the New York Times. Christie had passed away the day before. This obituary started on page one of the paper and continued on page 40. And I think it's only right if I took the time to read out Poirot's obituary that I do the same now for Agatha Christie. Agatha Christie, creator of Poirot, dies. This is written by Max Lowenthal. Dame Agatha Christie, the English writer who created two of the most distinctive sleuths of detective fiction, Jane Marple and Hercule Poirot, as the central characters in a hugely successful series of mystery stories for half a century, died yesterday at her home in Wallingford, England, 47 miles west of London. She was 85 years old. The sheer volume of Dame Agatha's writing since 1920, when the mysterious affair at Styles appeared, was enough to stagger even the most incurable addict of detective fiction. The Sausage Machine, as she once called herself, produced some 60 detective novels alone, and her books went through reprint after reprint and sold hundreds of millions of copies. When its usually superior quality was taken into account, her output appeared to be nothing less than prodigious. The creator of the dapper, relentless Monsieur Poirot, the shrewd, garrulous Miss Marple, and a half-dozen other energetic fictional sleuths was herself a shy, self-effacing, but regal person who set out to be an opera singer. Instead, starting to write in response to a challenge from her sister, she became a virtuoso performer in the fine art of the detective story who often devised her plots while lolling in the bathtub. Dame Agatha turned out more than 100 works. The full-scale detective stories, six psychological or romantic novels published under the name Mary Westmacott, 19 volumes of short mystery stories, 14 plays based on detective themes, among them The Mousetrap, which has broken just about every theatrical record since 1952 and is still running in London, two works of nonfiction, and a book of verse. 
In addition, most of her books were translated into almost every major language, and several of her plots were adapted for the stage in a number of foreign tongues as well as English or made into movies. On two occasions, though briefly, three Christie plays were on the London stage at one time. Dame Agatha's forte was supremely adroit plotting and sharp, believable characterization, even the names she used usually rank true. Her style and rhetoric were not remarkable. Her writing was almost invariably sound and workmanlike, without pretense or flourish. Her characters were likely to be of the middle-middle or upper-middle class, and there were certain archetypes, such as the crass American or the stuffy retired army officer, now in his anecdotage. However familiar all this might be, the reader would turn the pages, mesmerized as unexpected twist piled on unexpected twist until, in the end, he was taken by surprise and realized that he had stupidly ignored the vital clue casually introduced on page 123. There was simply no outguessing Poirot or Miss Marple, or Agatha Christie. A few Christies, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, a controversial book because of its unorthodoxy since its publication in 1926 is a preeminent example, were both extremely well-written and extremely skillfully plotted and ranked with the best of Simonon, S.S. Mandine, and perhaps even Conan Doyle. On the other hand, when Dame Agatha went into situations requiring more expressive writing, the results were often less than satisfactory and, indeed, were sometimes a little painful. Her love scenes in particular tended to be a bit soppy. We've got a new section now called Extraordinary Ability. Marjorie Allingham, also a mystery writer of wide reputation, said of Dame Agatha in an article in the New York Times Book Review in 1950, the impression she leaves is that she is a woman of extraordinary ability who could have done anything she chose to do. What she has done is to entertain more people for more hours at a time than almost any other writer of her generation. This appraisal was not universally shared, however. Robert Graves, another prodigious author, albeit of more serious works, writing of detective fiction in the book review in 1957, asked, Will the 21st century English literature course include Agatha Christie, statistically the most popular detective writer today? His reply was negative, although he acknowledged her popularity, especially on the stage. Though she knows the Devonshire countryside well and is not only a qualified pharmacist, an enthusiastic gardener, but a capable archaeological worker, he said, nobody could promise Agatha immortality as a novelist. Her English is schoolgirlish, her situations for the most part artificial, her detail faulty. New section, Father Was New Yorker. Dame Agatha was born Agatha Mary Clarissa Miller in Torquay, England, on September 15, 1890, the second of two children of Frederick A. Miller, a native of New York of independent means, his father had been a successful merchant, and of an English mother. The parents had moved in 1882 to the popular seaside resort, which eventually figured in a number of Christie's. Her biographical sketch, which required nearly five inches in the British who's who to make room for all the titles of her works, reflected her lifelong insistence on privacy by giving the barest of details. It noted that she was made a commander of the Order of the British Empire in 1956, that she was a fellow of the Royal Society of Letters, and that she had an honorary doctorate in literature. Since she was the wife of Sir Max Mallowan, she could choose to be called either Dame Agatha or Lady Mallowan. After the word education, there appeared the word home. Like many young women or good family at that time, she was largely educated by her mother, to whom she was intensely devoted. Next section is titled Abandoned Singing. Musically gifted and having a good voice, she started on a singing career and went to Paris to study, but her shyness led her to abandon the venture. In 1914, after a two-year engagement, she was married to a British air officer, Colonel Archibald Christie, whose name she retained for professional purposes after their divorce in 1928. They had a daughter, Rosalind, whose first husband died in war and who later became Mrs. Antony Hicks. Colonel Christie died in 1962. 
During World War I, Dame Agatha volunteered for hospital work, becoming a nurse and then a pharmacist and gaining expertise on poisons. She did the same sort of volunteer work in World War II. It was during this period that her sister challenged her to write a detective story. The mysterious affair at Styles, partly based on her wartime work, took several years to write and was turned down by so many publishers that she had nearly given up when it was accepted by the Bodley Head. Styles was successful, but no earthshaker. Its importance lay in the introduction of the grandly mustachioed Belgian egotist Poirot, his creator's favorite detective. Producing books at the rate of about one a year in that period, Dame Agatha soon established herself as among the most successful and entertaining authors of detective fiction. In December 1926, shortly after Roger Ackroyd was published, the writer of mysteries offered the public a mystery of her own. She disappeared for 10 days. The incident resulted in reams of stories in Britain and elsewhere, and it was widely believed at the time to be a stunt, but a principal clue, a name, showed this theory to be erroneous. Upset over the recent loss of her mother, sensing that her marriage was breaking up and perhaps not in the best of health, Dame Agatha apparently had an attack of amnesia. Whatever the reason, she abandoned her car and vanished, only to be found after an intensive land, sea, and air search involving thousands of policemen, soldiers, and amateur sleuths at a Yorkshire hotel where she was registered under the name of the woman who was to become Colonel Christie's second wife. Sales of her books spurted, and they were serialized in the press. She and her husband were reunited, but in April 1928, she filed for divorce in an action that was undefended. She then began to travel, concentrating on the Middle East. There, in 1930, she met a British archaeologist and scholar, Max E. L. Mallowan, now Sir Max, who was making one of his recurrent forays into the mysteries of Nineveh and Ur. They were married that September, and she accompanied him on his annual trips, becoming something of an archaeology buff, incorporating the milieu into her mysteries and later writing a book, Come, Tell Me How You Live, describing expedition life. Next section is titled, At Peak in 1930s. The 1930s saw Dame Agatha reach her peak output. In 1934-35, she published six novels, and at the same time, gratify her taste for buying, decorating, and furnishing houses, often with fine antiques. At one time, the Mallowans owned eight properties. Their principal residents in recent years were in Wallingford, Berkshire, in Churston Ferris, South Devon, and at Oxford. With the outbreak of World War II, Professor Mallowan, who is an honorary fellow of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, became an advisor to the British government, and his wife went back to the study of poisons and the dispensing of drugs. This did not interfere with the detective business, for a book or two appeared every year during the war. Among them was a revival of a team of amateurs, Tommy and Tuppence Beresford, who as a young couple were involved with espionage activities in World War I, in The Secret Adversary, and then, with grown children of their own, were concerned with Nazi infiltration. One of Dame Agatha's talents was the ability to keep up with the times. Next section, paperback sales soared. After the war, Dame Agatha's reputation and audience grew even greater, and her sales, particularly in paperback editions, skyrocketed. It was not unusual for a paperback, Pocketbooks and Dell were her American publishers in that form, to go into a 10th or 15th printing. Pocketbooks has had sales of 5 million copies in a year, and Penguin Books, the British paperback house, listed Christie's as the best sellers it has had. The murder of Roger Ackroyd alone sold more than a million copies. The stories and characters infiltrated from stage and screen onto radio and television. Perhaps the high point in this was in 1947, when the British Broadcasting Corporation presented a radio tribute to Queen Mary for her 80th birthday. She asked that an Agatha Christie be included, and the delighted author did Three Blind Mice, on which the mousetrap was later based, to order for the occasion. Dame Agatha also scored tremendously on the stage, although her record there was far more uneven than in books. The Mousetrap, whose stage title was taken from a line in another hit play, Hamlet, has broken every record for regular theatrical production since it opened in 1952 to mixed reviews at the Ambassador Theatre in London. 
It wears out cast, staff, and furniture, but goes on and on, perhaps on its own momentum. Last night's performance was number 9,612, and London theaters dimmed their lights in tribute to the writer. With such success on her hands, and with taxes what they were, Dame Agatha eventually decided to turn the rights to the mousetrap over to her grandson, Matthew C.T. Pritchard, who was born in 1943. Its earnings have enabled him to live in the grand style. Her first stage venture, Alibi, based on Roger Ackroyd, was highly successful in London and in New York, where it opened in 1932. Charles Lawton depicted Poirot. Years later, he starred with Marlena Dietrich in the film version of another highly successful Christie play, Witness for the Prosecution. Named the best foreign play of the 1954-55 New York season, it, in turn, was based on a rather undistinguished Christie short story. Another work that was a hit in several forms is known to Americans as Ten Little Indians or And Then There Were None, and also as The Nursery Rhyme Murders. A particularly ingenious piece of plotting, it was based, like many by the author, on a familiar nursery rhyme. The rhyme in the American versions was quite different from that in the originals. First published as a novel in 1939, the work was dramatized by Dame Agatha in 1943 and made into a movie in 1945 with Barry Fitzgerald and Walter Houston, and in 1965 with Wilfred Hyde White and Stanley Holloway. A third film version in 1973 starred Oliver Reed and Elka Sommer. Next section is titled Popular in Last Years. Her popularity, never exactly at a low point, even though some of her post-war books received less than enthusiastic notices, rose remarkably in the last two years of her life because of the release of the motion picture Murder on the Orient Express, based on her book Murder on the Calais Coach, and to the publication of Curtain, in which Poirot dies. Curtain was one of the books written decades earlier the Dame Agatha designated for publication after her death, but she evidently relented and decided to release it earlier. The book did exceedingly well, appearing on the bestseller list almost immediately on publication last October 15th. It was number one on the New York Times Book Review bestseller charts last week. More than 200,000 copies of Curtain are in print. With Murder on the Orient Express, Dame Agatha set a box office high. Directed by Sidney Lumet, it had an all-star cast that included Albert Finney as Poirot and Lauren Bacall, Ingrid Bergman, Sean Connery, John Gielgud, Wendy Hiller, Anthony Perkins, Richard Widmark, Michael York, Vanessa Redgrave, and Rachel Roberts. Our final section here is titled Eighth Highest Moneymaker. The film, released here by Paramount, returned $17.8 million in rentals to Paramount. It thus became the eighth highest moneymaker of last year. This represents receipts in the United States and Canada. Its earnings elsewhere in the world could equal or surpass that total. Agatha Christie, a tallish, white-haired presence who was always well turned out, insisted that she was not to be found in her books. Her shyness, which gave way to graciousness in her later years, made that idea credible enough. But it might be that Miss Marple, an aging lady with conservative tastes and somewhat old-fashioned ideas, but nevertheless with an acute awareness of what was going on about her, was the closest to Dame Agatha. Discussing the murderer after the solution of the crime in A Murder is Announced, Miss Marple, who figured in about 15 novels and helped her creator get through periods of boredom with Poirot, said, People with a grudge against the world are always dangerous. They seem to think life owes them something. I've known many an invalid who has suffered far worse and been cut off from life much more than Charlotte Blacklock, and they've managed to lead happy, contented lives. It's what's in yourself that makes you happy or unhappy. Poirot, also a talkative fellow who remarked in the ABC murders that there is nothing so dangerous for anyone who has something to hide as conversation, frequently made trenchant comments about crime and criminals. In Evil Under the Sun, he said, there is no such thing as a plain fact of murder. Murder springs nine times out of ten out of the character and circumstances of the murdered person. Because the victim was the kind of person he or she was, therefore was he or she murdered. 
Following Dame Magatha through the years, readers received a clear picture of certain segments of life, particularly that in the upper middle class in the English village, while sandwiching in contemporary elements so that her writings were a lighthearted social history. Dame Magatha managed to respond to a continuity of reader tastes. Escapist and superficial though detective stories may be, those by skilled professionals like Dame Magatha provided first-rate intellectual fare. On the other hand, the typical mystery does not really play fair with the reader because there are certain elements of which she is kept unaware. Dame Agatha maintained that she never cheated, but she confessed that she wrote ambiguously. Miss Marple, who became a movie character in the person of Margaret Rutherford, was known to acknowledge that she had information that others, including the reader, did not possess. Furthermore, the writer frequently resorted to coincidental meetings as a vital plot device. Even if she had cheated, it would not have mattered much, for her fans were devotedly loyal. One of them, a Florentine, wrote a book in Italian in 1957 entitled Love Letters to Agatha Christie. Besides her husband and grandson, Dame Agatha leaves a great-granddaughter. That is how the piece ends on a bit of an error, since at the time this obituary was written, I believe that two of Matthew Pritchard's three children were born, meaning Dame Agatha left behind a great-grandson in addition to a great-granddaughter. There were several other errors sprinkled throughout there. Uh, Christy herself was said to be the second of two children, for instance, but it would be petty of me to go through them one by one. On the whole, this is a wonderfully fulsome and full-bodied ode to the life and times of Agatha Christie, I think. I especially loved that mention of her skillful characterization. Well done, New York Times. That is overall, I think, a lovely tribute to Agatha Christie. And I would hereby like to apologize to the New York Times (laughs) for my own error in thinking that this obituary did not exist. Although you might want to see what's going on with the search engine. Dame Agatha did indeed get her due upon her death. Poirot did not pull one over on her. Just one final note on this obituary. How fantastic is that quote in there from Robert Graves? Will the 21st century English literature course include Agatha Christie? It's practically a rhetorical question for him. He, of course, says no. But I'm here from the future to tell you, Bob, that the 21st century English literature course does indeed include Agatha Christie. More and more so every day, in fact. And even though Robert felt nobody could promise Agatha immortality as a novelist, hey, it's all good because uh, no promises need be made. Her immortality is quite secure. Thank you very much. But there were a handful, a large handful of you that contacted me about this saying, hey, actually, there is an obituary. And that was another really long readout. But I just wanted to give both the New York Times and, of course, Dame Agatha Christie uh, their due here in the immediate wake of the passing of this great author. All right, so I've got a few more nitpicks, actually, about my review of Curtain. Here's what one listener had to say. This is going to be a spoiler for Curtain, so fast forward a minute or two if you haven't yet read Curtain. One small aspect which I think you were mistaken about plot-wise is that I am pretty sure that X's technique as catalyst for other people's murderous tendencies is not revealed to Hastings and the reader until Poirot's letter at the end of the book. I don't have the book with me here to check, but I clearly remember Hastings wondering after the shooting of Mrs. Luttrell if perhaps X was hiding somewhere and shot her at the same time her husband did. Even poor dense Hastings wouldn't have thought along these lines if Poirot had told him already that X was not a direct murderer. Plus, as you mentioned, the Othello clue loses its significance if we know this already. X's true role being one of the surprise twists at the end greatly enhances the mechanics aspect of the book, I would say. 
And more than one person emailed me about this. That was my error. And it's just one of those errors that happens sometimes as one prepares one's notes after reading a book. But I had said on the episode that the Othello clue was redundant, given the fact that we already knew X acted as a catalyst. And that is not true. An additional curtain nitpick comes from another listener. This one is also a bit of a spoiler for curtain. So fast forward here as well, if you haven't yet read that book. I did notice a glaring error when I reread the book, and I was shocked that neither of you brought it up since I was so sure one of you would. Why is there no mention of anyone hearing the gunshot that killed Norton? Shouldn't someone have heard it? Shouldn't the whole house have heard it? Surely Poirot did not use a silencer. Fair point. <laughs> I think that that is just a detail that got overlooked, though. If anyone has any textual evidence with which to refute that quibble, I would love to hear it. Let me know. And we're still on curtain here. This one is not spoilery. Um, and I found this fascinating. A listener wrote into me about my comments on the darkness of the tone and the mood in curtain and how it felt to me as though it was influenced by what was happening during World War II, specifically during the Holocaust. So here's that listener's reaction. Just a comment about the idea about the darkness of mood perhaps being influenced by the Shoah. And I'll pause here and note that this listener does not use the word Holocaust for what happened to the Jewish people, among other peoples, during World War II. She writes, I don't use the word Holocaust because that denotes a spiritual holy sacrifice. And what happened to my family, my people, and other victimized populations was as unholy as inhumans can get. Absolutely no criticism intended of anyone using Holocaust. It's just my personal stance. So that is why she is using Shoah here. Back to her point. Little was known publicly in 1939 to 41 about the terrible betrayals by neighbors, etc. Perhaps the general grimness of the war situation, yes. But the Shoah, I rather doubt it. Fair enough. It's difficult because we don't know exactly when <laughs> this book was written and when it was revised by Christie. But if it had been written at that earlier time, I think that is absolutely a fair critique of my comments on what might have been influencing its dark mood. And then I had two listeners email me separately about a glancing reference I made in a humorous way to Poirot having OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. And I want to read both of these messages out because it's a perspective I hadn't considered and I think it's important. Here's the first response. I was moved to write because a close relative of mine has OCD, and I hope, without being harsh, to let you know that I was surprised and dismayed to hear you make light of this serious mental health problem. I'm not an expert, so I don't know if a person can actually have a touch of OCD. Perhaps they can. I sometimes think I have subclinical symptoms. But those who have the actual disorder suffer, as do their loved ones. OCD has interfered with my relative's ability to work and maintain relationships. He's been bullied on the job by his boss, no less, and has sometimes been so depressed that he's considered ending his life. OCD is a truly terrible thing. I also wanted to share that the portrayal of OCD in the TV show Monk is controversial. And then this is what the second listener had to say on the same topic. Another point I feel strongly about is that Poirot does not have OCD. It is a common misconception that OCD is all about a preference for neatness and cleanliness, but in reality, obsessive-compulsive disorder is a distressing and debilitating mental health condition that significantly interferes with everyday living. 
It involves intrusive thoughts and the urge to perform repetitive tasks to alleviate mental discomfort. A strong preference for order, method, cleanliness, and symmetry, while very helpful with solving crime, does not mean that Poirot or anybody else who has this preference has a mental health condition. That is not something that I ever thought about all that deeply. I should say deeply enough. I appreciate those perspectives from people who are more familiar with obsessive compulsive disorder. So thank you for sharing that perspective. And I wanted to share it with all of you. And then I mentioned this reference to a jingle or catchphrase of some sort in Curtin. He knows his stuff better than most. This was a catchphrase of some sort that confused me because it was clearly referenced in the text, but I couldn't source it anywhere online. Google failed me one of the very few times in my life that Google has failed me. But fortunately, I have my good friend Tony Medawar, who did not fail me. Tony came to my rescue, and this is what he had to say. He knows his stuff better than most was the slogan of a post-war national advertising campaign by the British Army to encourage firms to employ former soldiers. So now you know. And now we all do. Thank you, Tony. And Tony actually went on to say that this also tells us that either Christie wrote the book after the war or that she at the very least revised it after the war. So the debate about when exactly this book was written rages on. <laughs> But let's let that debate burn quietly in the background as we move on to some listener comments. This is going to be the comments portion of the mega housekeeping segment at the top of this episode. So I'm actually going to mention this first comment later on in my conversation with John, but I'd like to read out this listener's full comment now. So here goes. I'm a new listener and really loving the podcast so far. I've started from the bottom and binging my way up. I just listened to the episode from the 5th of November 2016 about the man in the brown suit. Perhaps someone has pointed this out since the episode aired, but as a South African, I am rather obligated to inform you that you overlooked an utterly reprehensible racial slur that occurs in multiple instances throughout the book, also a major bummer for me as a fan of Agatha Christie. The word is classified as hate speech in South Africa as of 2000, and it is now commonly referred to as the K-word. The closest possible equivalent is the N-word with a very hard R, although even a hard R doesn't have quite the same sting to it as the K-word does in South Africa. I like to believe the use of the word in question is not so much ill-intended as it is ignorant, though the tone it sets through its particularly casual, matter-of-fact use certainly, though probably inadvertently, conveys a rather honest take on the abhorrent harsh reality of blatant, shameless racism during those times, particularly in South Africa. And I'm not going to say what that K-word is. If you are curious and you don't know what I mean, it is eminently Googleable. But I really appreciated that perspective on the man in the brown suit, which is largely set in South Africa. Invaluable perspective from a South African. Okay, this next comment is a much happier one and pretty fantastic. It's a bit of a long message, but I think it's worth it. Here is what one of you listeners had to say to me in an email. You mentioned that the dedication in Halloween Party is to P.G. Woodhouse and that Christie and Woodhouse were friends. I think there's a little bit more to Christie's dedication. It's hard to believe now, given the affection with which everyone seems to regard Jeeves and Worcester, but in 1969, Woodhouse had still not been forgiven by the British public or the British establishment for a significant wartime faux pas he had made. In short, Woodhouse was in France when the Germans invaded and, very Worcester-like, botched his escape to Portugal. He was captured as a man of fighting age, and it took the Germans a long time to recognize both his value and his political naivety. Once they did, they released him, released as in quotes, on condition that he wrote and gave some radio broadcasts. 
Naturally, Woodhouse wrote these in the style of his stories, making light of the extremely brutal conditions he'd suffered whilst imprisoned, and cracking other jokes besides, and generally not understanding the gravity of the war and British attitudes towards the Germans. In Parliament, some MPs wanted Woodhouse tried for treason, or else punished in some other way. Even A.A. A. Milne wrote barbed takedowns in the press. After the war, he was told no legal action would be taken against him and was allowed to leave France. He went to the U.S. and never returned again to the U.K. He became an American citizen in 1955 and lived there the rest of his life. At the point when Christie dedicated her novel to him, attempts to award him a knighthood were still repeatedly blocked. Eventually, it was announced in January 1975, and he died the next month on Valentine's Day, aged 93. Christie's dedication, then, feels like a statement of intent and support for a writer whose work she cherished against political and public opinion. That's it in a large nutshell, and at the time of writing that, I'd been unaware of Christie publicly showing the public she felt it was time to forgive her friend. When you mentioned her dedication, it instantly occurred to me that it was a potentially risky step for her to take. I actually knew all of that about Woodhouse's misstep, if you want to call it that, during World War II, and the fact that he had been more or less ostracized from England, and that was why he lived the rest of his days in the U.S. But I never thought about Agatha Christie's dedication of Halloween Party to him in 1969 in that context. And I think absolutely this listener has something there, and that's really fascinating. It adds another layer to the friendship between Christie and Woodhouse, and I love that. All right, another listener comment. This one is much shorter. I just listened to the discussion of NRM and enjoyed the issue of the German head. If you remember in that book, Christy mentions the notion of a German head as though Germans have a specific head shape. <laughs> this listener continues. Oddly enough, I recently asked my barber if I would be better off having all my hair cut off as hacking out the gray is leaving me with less and less up top. He said I would be fine as I have, apparently, a good German head. <laughs> Even more odd is that both my parents have a strong streak of German ancestry, so German heads are still a thing, at least in Australia, in 2022. Good to know. <laughs> and I will end my housekeeping with a long listener note about another important topic that has come up from time to time on the podcast, but which I have not dealt with fully or perhaps even fairly. And that is what this listener took issue with. And I just want to provide her perspective on the matter. Hi, Kemper. This is an email I meant to write back when you released the Endless Night episode, but I was just reminded while listening to the Regatta Mystery episode about a dimension of the stuck-in-its-time Roma-slash-Gypsy issue that bears mentioning. You're right to point out that Gypsy is generally, but not exclusively, considered an outdated and pejorative term for the Roma-slash-Romani people, but this is not the most important criticism to flag when it comes to Christie's depiction of this ethnicity. Much more importantly, her depiction of Roma characters sadly mimic the damaging mystic-slash-trickster-slash-nomad trope that have plagued the real-life Roma for a millennium and persist throughout Europe, including the UK, today. I almost don't know where to begin, and wouldn't know where to stop, in passing along resources documenting the role of these tropes in anti-Roma discrimination, violence, and legislation, including a set of 2021 UK laws. Suffice it to say that this phenomenon is well-documented, and Christie is one of a long line of authors to invoke this trope repeatedly and, in fact, as the single context in which she depicts Roma characters. Her use of the word gypsy is the minor offense compared to these insidious depictions. I would draw a parallel to her depiction of Jewish characters. Anti-Semitic slurs deserve deductions, but depicting all Jewish characters as nothing more than walking anti-Semitic tropes would be much worse. 
Christie's Jewish characterization isn't so bleakly one-dimensional and thus, shockingly, acquits itself better than her Roma characterization. On a final grim note, the Roma were slaughtered alongside Jews by the hundreds of thousands during the Holocaust. In your discussion with Michelle Kasmer, stuck-in-their-time depictions of the Welsh, Jews, women, and others came up, and I think that it's only right to give the often-overlooked Roma some due attention. For a variety of complex reasons, the Roma are an especially misunderstood group, particularly by Americans. I would love All About Agatha to address this topic. If you're interested, We Are the Romani People, British Roma author Ian Hancock, and Bury Me Standing by Isabel Fonseca are great introductory reads on the fascinating and often tragic past and present of the Roma. Thank you, as always, for your careful consideration for these elements stuck in their time, and thank you for another great episode. And thank you, listener, for taking the time. I really do appreciate these perspectives, especially about depictions stuck in their time. Since I am one person, and I know that I only have my own static perspective, and it really enriches that conversation when you write in and share your thoughts with me. So thank you for that. Woo! Housekeeping sorted! Deck the halls with British mystery. Fa la 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 la. Yes, it is that time of year, dear listeners. The most wonderful time of year, especially if you are a fan of British mysteries. This holiday season, you can give the gift of the best in British TV with a BritBox gift subscription. You're giving the gift of Poirot and Marple and so much more. There's also a little kickback for you because this is your chance to get your friends and family hooked on the same shows you've been binging so that you can rave about these mysteries together and share your love for the superior content on offer over at BritBox.com. So this year, give the gift of BritBox. Plus, if you buy a gift subscription this holiday season, you could win a seven-day all-expenses-paid trip to London and the Cotswolds. You could also visit the set of a BritBox mystery during filming, and you could even have the chance to understudy as a dead body on screen. Are you losing your mind yet? I should note there is no purchase necessary here. Visit BritBox.com slash one way for full terms and conditions. That's BritBox.com slash one way to purchase your gift subscription today. And it is now, at long last, time to bring John Curran aboard this podcast train here to discuss the full and final state of the rankings of the novels on this podcast. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, then you've heard John Curran's name many, many, many times before now. We Christie fans torture ourselves sometimes by talking about which among Christie's novels would be our desert island pick, the novel we take with us if we could have just one novel to read over and over again. And I would like to extend that analogy by saying that Agatha Christie's Secret Notebooks by John Curran is my desert island Christie reference pick. For me and many others, it is the most important work 
of scholarship when it comes to understanding how Christie did what she did. It's just an essential secondary source. And let's not forget that John is the reason we can now all read the original rejected version of the capture of Cerberus and the short story, The Incident of the Dog's Ball, which Christie later expanded into the novel Dumb Witness. He is one of very few people on this earth who is intimately acquainted with Agatha Christie's notebooks and her correspondence and any other source material he can get his hands on. And we readers are all the richer for it. My partner, Catherine Brobeck, and I have relied on his work time and time again while reviewing Christie's novels and short stories. So it was with great eagerness that we interviewed him for the podcast many years ago when we had covered just one third of Christie's oeuvre. Back then, we had only done 22 of the novels. Unfortunately, the audio quality of that interview is among the worst of any episode we've ever published. And again, if you are a regular listener of this podcast, you know that is saying something. Uh, I was so pleased then to be able to have John on the podcast once again during the live episode I recorded this past September from the International Agatha Christie Festival. But alas, I fear I reached a new abysmal low in terms of audio quality on that roving episode. Poor John has been the victim now of poor audio quality on this podcast twice, which is why I'm so grateful he's even agreed to come on the podcast again and why I'm determined the third time will be a charm as he and I review the full and final state of the rankings now that all 66 of Christie's novels have been covered. Accepting Catherine herself, of course, I couldn't imagine a better partner for this endeavor than John, and I know Catherine would be so pleased he's finally getting his due in an episode in which his voice will be ringing out loud and clear via Zoom. Welcome, John Curran. Thank you, Kemper. And I'm very glad this is audio only because I'm blushing a lot here. (laughs) Well, I am so excited to have you here for this final state of the ranking. These episodes uh, were always a lot of fun to do with Catherine, where we just take stock of our rankings grid and where the titles have fallen. Sometimes it's really helpful, I think, to review these rankings once we've had some distance from the novels. It can be a little difficult to rank them immediately after having read them. And I know that you have a lot of opinions about where some of these titles fall. I do as well. I have a couple of uh, titles here that I think are out of whack. A couple of uh, Catherine's opinions as well that I have in mind, which I will be bringing up from time to time. But I think what makes sense here is to do what we usually do and start from the top and work our way down on our grid. And again, uh, for listeners who would like, I will have posted this grid on the podcast's social media platforms on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. So if you'd like to access the grid so that you can read along with us as we're doing this, please feel free to do so. So I'm going to read out our top 10, which is a glorious top 10, and one that I feel very good about and and one that I actually would not change whatsoever. In descending order, we have Five Little Pigs, and then there were none, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, Endless Night, Crooked House, A Murder is Announced, Murder on the Orient Express, The Hollow, Death on the Nile, and in 10th place, Peril at End House. I adore every single one of those titles. I'm so thrilled that Five Little Pigs is still in our number one spot, even though our live audience at the International Agatha Christie Festival claimed that And Then There Were None was the top title. I know that you agree with me, John, on Five Little Pigs uh, mm-hmm. being in, in prime position there. But I believe there is one title here in this top 10 that you take a little bit of issue with. 
Yes, I'm afraid there is. I mean, by and large, I do agree. I might change the order of some of them, but the one book that jumps out at me as not really belonging in the top 10, and I should emphasise that I'm judging this solely as detective fiction, and that title is The Hollow. I do agree that it's probably one of her best written books, but I always feel it's a Mary Westmacott that just happens to have Hercule Poirot in it. Um, I don't think the plot, as a detective plot, is anything as good as Death on the Nile or The Murder of Roger Ackroyd or A Murder is Announced. Good or bad writing for me is just the icing on the cake or not on the cake, as the case may be. Mm-hmm. The good writing, the excellent writing of The Hollow doesn't make up to me for the fact that the detective plot is pretty non-existent, really. And the other thing that makes no sense to me is Hercule Poirot buying a house in the country. <laughs> I mean, he hates the country. And in fact, they made quite a lot of this in the TV adaptation when he was mincing along the road trying to avoid puddles and mud. So that makes no sense to me whatsoever. And the, the part of that, I also feel it's, I won't go as far as say cheating because of course Agatha Christie doesn't cheat, <laughs> but the killer in the hollow disappears for most of the book once the murder is committed and doesn't reappear until almost the day Numa. So for that reason, I would have The Hollow not in the top 10. In the top 20, yes, but not in the top 10. I take all of your points. I think that the fact that the plotting is not among Christie's best and also the detective characterization, because it is absolutely true, Poirot's way into that story is so awkward when he's just, oh, hey, I'm I'm a, your next door neighbor. Hey, neighbor, uh, here in the countryside is just beyond credulity. You know, she usually is much yeah. better, I think, at inserting Poirot into her books than that. Um, we gave it a six for plot mechanics and a six, actually, for series characters, which is, I think is reflective of that awkwardness regarding Poirot. But it's a little bit of a philosophical question in that if we're ranking these as detective novels, right, or pieces of of detective fiction, then The Hollow certainly should not be in the top 10. As a book, it is extremely impressive and effective, and I think just ultimately successful. And I also agree with you that it really does feel like a Mary Westmacott. Her characterization as to Henrietta, in particular, uh, is some of the more exquisite characterization I think that she's done. And Henrietta does feel like she belongs in a Mary Westmacott novel. I, I feel the same way about certain aspects of Sad Cypress, actually, which is why I have such affection for that title as well, even though I think it's a more successful detective story. But I think that we're ranking these books as books so that we can be, I think, a little bit more general when we're talking about whether or not they work. I don't think that they just have to work as detective stories. I think the fact that this does work as one of her more Mary Westmacottish books is significant and that we actually can incorporate that into the rankings. But I know that your focus, John, is always on the crafting of the puzzle. Does The Hollow deserve nine for plot credibility? I don't. Certainly it doesn't to me. Well, I think, I mean, it's... That's That's a matter of fact, that's the most generous mark for any of the top 10 in plot credibility. It's true. And I actually remember, I believe that when Catherine and I were ranking The Hollow, we were toying with giving it a 10 
for plot credibility because, and it's funny, but I'm also going to incorporate in this conversation where I can some comments from listeners who have written into me about the rankings. Mm-hmm. Since at this point, listeners know that the rankings uh, episode is coming up and they give me their opinions and I try to air them whenever I can. One of the listeners said that he appreciates the fact that the murder plot in the hollow is pretty simple. And of course I'm going, we're going to be spoiling any of these titles that we're discussing in detail. So if you haven't read the hollow fast forward a minute or two, because I'm about to spoil it, but Gerda is not a particularly intelligent character. I mean, that's what, that's one of her main traits and her murderous plot is very simple. And she would, of course would have been, completely unsuccessful if her family hadn't stepped in and covered for her, which is really what's going on here. And it's almost a little bit of a murder on the Orient Express-ish kind of concept here and that almost everyone is in on it, right? And that simplicity is believable given who Gerda is. And the fact that the family steps in and covers for her is also believable. Plot credibility has to do with, are people acting like regular humans or or are they merely automatons who are carrying out this elaborate puzzle that Christie concocted because she needs the, the pieces to do what they need to do to pull off her elaborate puzzle. And sometimes they don't feel like human beings. And this is a book that feels populated by living and breathing red-blooded human beings from beginning to end. I think more so almost than any other book. So that's where the nine is coming from in plot credibility. I will I will say this, John. I remember, I think in the last rankings episode, we were fiddling around with Death on the Nile and The Hollow and Murder on the Orient Express because they're all ranked at 35 points. And I actually have no problem with switching Death on the Nile and The Hollow. My appreciation for Death on the Nile only grows with each year (laughs) that that I've done this podcast. I just think it is is one of her best books. It's a book that I think typifies what she does so well and so brilliantly. So it needs to be in the top 10 and, I, and I'm fine with it being higher in the top 10. So at the very least, flipping those two titles, I know you wouldn't even have the hollow in the top 10, but I'm happy to do that. Okay, well, that's that's a gesture. But I'm <laughs> and I'm curious, John, what would you put in the top 10 in, in place of the hollow? What What among the titles perhaps in 11 through 20 do you feel is too low? I would probably switch places with the ABC murders, the hollow and the ABC murders, because the ABC murders, I know it's a high concept, but it is it is a simple plot when you see the explanation. And it's been copied countless times on every TV crime show you've ever seen. So I would put it way above the hollow. I agree with you that the ABC murders is one of her best. I mean, so right now, and and actually let's just read out, um, especially for those who might not have the grid in front of them. Let's read out titles 11 through 20. We've got the murder at the Vicarage cards on the table, the ABC murders after the funeral, sad Cypress ordeal by innocence towards zero curtain evil under the sun and three act tragedy. Uh, Christy, is such a superlative writer that I think I, I on any given day, any of those 20 titles could be my favorite Christie. <laughs> I, I adore every single one of those titles and perhaps especially the ABC murders. We have a bunch of titles that are, have scored 33 points, which is where the ABC murders hangs out. And it's almost near the top cards on the table has been ranked 
above it. Given that you just singled out ABC murders for its brilliance, I'm certainly happy with the ABC murders being higher than cards on the table. You would, I'm assuming you would, of course, put it above the murder at the vicarage as well. I would. I would. Yeah, well, I, I'd like it in the top 10, but failing that, I'd like it to be number 11. <laughs> you know what, John? The Murder at the Vicarage, I think I've decided, is the book that I have the most affection for. It might actually be my Desert Island Christie. As I was doing my intro there for you, I was thinking, well, what is my Desert Island Christie? And that changes, I think, on an almost daily basis. But I've just, in the last couple of months, been thinking about how much affection I have for the murder at the vicarage and that narrative voice of Leonard Clement. And even though it's overstuffed and you can feel that it's an earliest Christie and that perhaps her plotting isn't as, as elegant as it became. She wasn't the well-oiled machine. I think that she became in, you know, later in the thirties and certainly in the forties. I, I just absolutely adore that title. But for you, John, I think we can put the ABC murders just below Peril at End House. And I cannot yeah. knock Peril at End House out of the top 10 because oh, no. No, Catherine no, would, would never forgive me. So no. <laughs> we, we cannot commit sacrilege. Uh, no, Peril at End House, I think I say it in Secret Notebooks, it's the model detective story of the Golden Age. It's, it has everything. It's so economically presented and plotted. Again, the plot has been copied, even by Christie herself, a few times. But Perilous End House remains, for me, certainly in the top ten. I've always had a lot of time for Perilous End House. Oh, good. Okay. Well, I'm glad we're on the same page about that. So what we need to do is goose up the ABC murders. Where do you think we ranked it a bit low? We gave it a seven in plot mechanics and a six in plot credibility. I would give it eight in plot mechanics, I think that's fair. It's, I mean, it's one of her most brilliant concepts, yeah. actually. It it's, it's the serial killer novel, it, yeah. you know? Well, you see, uh, yeah, I know it's always seen as a serial killer, but is it really? No, well, and because it's Christy, it's, of course, more complicated than that, and yeah. she pulls the rug out from under us by the end of it. So yeah. she manages to, you know, I mean, how amazing is it that in, in the 1930s, Agatha Christie created a book where she had her cake and ate it, too, as to... Yeah doing a serial killer story, but within the confines of the golden age of detective fiction. Because it's, ultimately it's not really a serial exactly. killer story. There's a very rational, classic there reason for why those murders were committed, right? Now, when you see in, in Secret Notebooks, in the notebook, it wasn't as straightforward as that when she started planning it, but she streamlined it into a hugely accessible, very clever, very deceptive book. So I'm glad you've you've seen the light camper and I've moved it up. <laughs> and you know, that's one thing that's just worth highlighting because I think you make that point a lot in Agatha Christie's Secret Notebooks. The fact that for someone who has such, I, I, I always call them gonzo high concepts, these high concepts mm -hmm. that can be boiled down to one sentence or sometimes even half a sentence. I think there's an assumption made and, and it's a it's a fair one, or it's at least an obvious one, which is why the assumption is made so often that she sat down and said, oh, I have a great idea. I'm going to do blank did it. This is going to be my blank did it book. But she actually was a lot more writerly than that, in that she sat down to write something and the story coalesced yes. as she was writing into these gonzo high concepts. Yes. Is that fair to say? It is absolutely because it is notable in all of the 73 notebooks, roughly 7,000 pages. On very, very few occasions does she name the killer. Mm. 
I describe in Secret Notebooks that she used the notebooks, the physical notebooks, as sounding boards almost and scribbling pads. She was sort of, if you like, thinking on paper. So the, the plot still went through changes and refinements when she came to actually write it or type it or dictate it or whatever, because she rarely, the, the one that sticks out to me, jumps out at me, is Crooked House. Now, I would have thought, again, if we're doing spoilers, the fact that the child is the killer. I would have thought, as you said a moment ago, when she sat down to write that, she'd say, this is the book where I'm going to make the child the killer. But yeah. actually, she didn't. She went through most of the characters in the book when she was looking for her villain. And it seems as if Josephine was a late thought. That was the one that surprised me most, because I would have thought that was the whole raison d'etre of that book. But it wasn't. That, that one is particularly shocking because it feels like you would have had to yeah. set out to do that. But maybe that's why it's as effective as it is, because Josephine has created, you know, it. the fact that it came to her after she had created Josephine, maybe, you know, that's why she's as convincing. Because it's not just, you know, this this isn't some sort of cheesy, bad seed sort of thing that, that she was doing. I mean, it's it, Josephine's a very convincing killer in that very. book. So and quite poignant, in fact, when you do get the end. I mean, I know she was she was an evil person, but you do feel somewhat sorry for her living in that appalling family and that appalling house. Yes, but but just from the point of view of plot mechanics, it always surprised me that she hadn't settled on Josephine before she even began to plot it. She clearly didn't. She must have set out, though, to do the everyone did it concept when she was writing Murder on the Orient Express. Do you, do we have evidence for that or is that just no, a we don't. Hmm. Very, very sadly, there are no notes for Murder on the Orient Express or even more sadly, the murder of Roger Ackroyd. Wow. Nothing. So we have no idea what her thought process no. was for those two, no. you know, two of no. the best and biggest yeah. high concepts. Hmm. And not just her best, but the best in the whole genre. I yeah. mean, she never wrote another book after Roger Ackroyd. We'd still know her today, I'm convinced. And possibly the same with Orient Express. But no notes for them, which is a huge disappointment. Mm. Mm. Now, can I make your life even more difficult by taking issue with one of the one of the titles in the top 20? Yes, please. Uh, Ordeal by Innocence. Mm. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a bit hollowish again, because I agree that, well, I, I imagine this is the reason for it position which is number 16 the characterization in that and the whole concept of somebody coming back and the merger is still amongst us but i just feel as a detective story again this is with my whodunit hat on it doesn't really work as well for instance as say lord edgeware dies which is in the third mm-hmm. group mm-hmm. term so while i do and i know ordeal by innocence is one of her own favorites but I feel that um, the reader doesn't really have a chance. There are almost no clues to the identity of the killer. And I also feel that in that book, there are two murders dragged in at the last minute. And really, as Ariadne Oliver said at one stage, I think they're there just to bump up the page count. <laughs> and that, that's sacrilegious coming from me. But <laughs> would you disagree? I wouldn't. It's so funny that you identified Ordeal by Innocence as a problematic title because I completely agree with you. This is a very curious title. I always thought very highly 
of Ordeal by Innocence. And I think there are two reasons for that. Christy herself, as you mentioned, identified it as one of her favorites. And I think the reason for that is, is that it has one of the more obvious preoccupations with justice and um, yes. what that means. And, and it's handled, you know, very well in the book. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. It's an interesting treatise on justice. I actually think she deals with it a little bit more subtextually and interestingly in other books, because it's honestly almost always a theme in all of Christie, right? It is. But there is that. So her regard for it, I think, colored my regard. And then the Donald Sutherland movie, I watched that movie when I was very young and I mistakenly thought that it was much better than it is. And I always had a high regard for the movie. And I think because of that for the book as well. And having watched the movie for the podcast, I realized that that movie is nowhere near as good as I thought it was. It seems like a better movie than it, than it is. I think there's, there's a reason why I was impressed by it <laughs> as a child, but ordeal by innocence, the novel itself is really not one of her best. It's still, I'll be honest with you. I think that it should be in the top half, but mm, I, yes. But I don't think that it should be in the necessarily in the top 20. And I completely agree with you that Lord Edgeware Dies is a superior book. Oh, um, you know, Catherine always had her problems with Jane Wilkinson, but that is a testament to the power of Jane Wilkinson. I, I adore Lord Edgeware Dies. So do I. I would rate, rate it much, much higher than Ordeal by Innocence. Just to go back to the movies for a second, I yeah. mean, I would agree with you that the Donald Sutherland version is far from perfect. But compared to the two later incarnations, it's a work of art, would you know? <laughs> no, well, John, so are you saying you're not a fan of the Sarah Phelps BBC adaptations? Well, well, you could say that, yes. I would stretch a point and say that. I think all of her adaptations, with the possible exception of And Then There Were None, are an insult to Christie's memory and legacy, and they're, not, they're absolute travesties. And I, I've paid them the compliment of never watching them a second time. Normally, I would watch all of the adaptations a few times, but they are still in their shrink wrap in the DVD case. I will never watch them again because I think they're, they're staying on Agatha Christie's memory. Did you watch all the ITV Agatha Christie's Marple episodes? Well, I watch, watch everything, even something that's going to be appalling. I still watch it because I can't not watch it, if you know what I mean. Yes. But the... I don't like the um, Marple version of Ordeal by Innocence. I mean, there should be no such thing as a right. Marple version of Ordeal by Innocence. But again, it's a work of art compared to the Sarah Phelps abomination. Yes, the Donald Sutherland adaptation is the best adaptation we have of Ordeal by Innocence, but that is a very relative statement. I agree, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I would be very comfortable knocking Ordeal by Innocence down a bit. And I think that is easily done. I'm just looking at the specific categories here. We gave it an eight for plot mechanics and a six for plot credibility, which feels well, a bit high. <laughs> well, I think eight is very generous for plot mechanics because there, are, there, there are no plot mechanics apart from the fact of um, the witness coming back all those years later. But there's no clever pulling the wool over the reader's eyes to any great extent really is there there's not and and you alluded to this but i think that it's one of christie's least satisfying murderer reveals actually yes because we know so little about that murderer and yeah. it's very obvious that so so much has been kept from us 
as yes, as readers as to who she is and what's been going on that it's very very frustrating and christy that is a trap that many mystery writers fall into christy almost never falls into it and i think this is a rare exception where she does well i'm i'm happy knocking plot mechanics down to a seven which would give it 32 points and we have just a a whole ream of books at 33 and 32 points which is why we have a lot to play around with just having done that because at 32 points we have 450 from paddington in 29th place and i certainly don't think it should be as low as that certainly lord edgeware dies should be above ordeal by innocence i might be okay putting it actually between lord edgeware dies and the pale horse uh, yes yeah so in other words lord edgeware dies does come out higher up than ordeal by innocence yes exactly so yeah. ordeal by innocence and that might also change as we continue going down this list but let's just do one thing at a time here so i'm right now going to knock down ordeal by innocence and place it in 22nd place actually because now lord edgeware dies will be bumped up to 21st so our 11 through 20 now includes appointment with death We've knocked Ordeal by Innocence down to 22nd. And so in 20th place, we have Appointment with Death. And then I'm just going to read out our 21 through 30 now. We have Lord Edgeware Dies, Ordeal by Innocence, The Pale Horse, Mrs. McGinty's Dead, The Body in the Library, Taken at the Flood, Cat Among the Pigeons, The Sitterford Mystery, 450 from Paddington, and in 30th place, The Mysterious Affair at Styles. And you know what? I'm just going to read out the next three titles because that's our top half, our current top half. We've got Dead Man's Folly in 31st place, Hercule Poirot's Christmas in 32nd, and Sparkling Cyanide in 33rd place. So that's our current top half. How do you feel about these titles here between uh, 20th and 33rd place, John? Well, one that I would like to see bumped up a bit is Hercule Poirot's Christmas. Mm-hmm. Because it is, it's the classic country house murder mystery. And she wrote fewer of those than most people think if you sit down and count them. And it's also one of the few that she does a locked room mystery. And, but the odd thing about it is, and again, I think I say this in Secret Notebooks, even though it's Hercule Poirot's Christmas, there is absolutely no Christmas atmosphere whatsoever. There's no presents, there's no, you know, decorations, there's no turkey, there's no anything. So I do wonder if she submitted it and Collins held on to it until Christmas and just called it Hercule Poirot's Christmas. Because it could be Hercule Poirot's summer or it could be Hercule Poirot's almost Easter or anything. But that aside, it is a very clever story. Oh, that's a really interesting theory. I've never heard anyone propose that. Is is there any evidence for that, given on when she wrote it versus when no, it was published? No, unfortunately, there are no, well, I won't say there are no dates in the notebooks. There are very few dates, but when, they, when there are dates, they would be really informative ones like 1st of February, 22nd of September, 6th of March, but no years. Interesting. So, and go, just going on memory, there are no dates for the notes of Hercule Poirot's Christmas at all. Well, that could be why, because it is bizarre how little Christmas there is in Hercule Poirot's Christmas. And maybe and she just know, added them in I, after the fact, is what you're saying. At a vastly inferior story like Adventure of the Christmas Pudding, it's laden with Christmas atmosphere. And Hercule Poirot's Christmas isn't at all. Well, that's why it has a six for setting and tone. That's one of the reasons it has a six. This is one of those. So every year, John, I mean, we're, you're, you're really singing my, my tune here because every year I have bumped up 
Hercule Poirot's Christmas. Catherine was always a little resistant to this because she did not have a good reading experience reading this book because I think the non-Christmassy atmosphere and also just the unlikability, I guess, of the characters and a certain flatness to the characters as well makes it a less than stellar Christie, I think. But the concept and, you know, now that we've covered curtain we can also say that you you can feel a little bit of a proto curtain thing going on mm-hmm. here and that the yes. inspector did it yeah. that is so clever it's such a clever twist and and truly surprising i mean this is one where i remember when i reread it for the podcast even though i knew that that was coming she layers in the clues as to the inspector yes. resembling the rest of the family and Absolutely. the fact that he was there before and then he comes back i mean it's it's just so masterfully done yes. um yes. and i do and i i do like a locked room mystery i think that this novel shows why she didn't do it too often and why she wasn't more of a John Dixon Carr writer because it is highly artificial. And I think it's right. It's, it's hard to set, to concoct a locked room mystery and to do so elegantly. I actually think that murder in Mesopotamia is the more elegant locked room mystery that she wrote. Right. It has its own problems, but there's so there's so much blocking with Hercule Poirot's Christmas with this, you know, the strings and the and the the pig whistle thing or the balloon and et cetera, et cetera. It's just there's a lot going on there and all the blood, but it's still it all works. I mean, she she does pull it all off and, and it makes sense and it could have happened. So I completely agree with you. I think in that this is one of her bigger and better high concepts. It deserves to be higher. And I hear from a lot of listeners who agree with me <laughs> and you about that. So I'm, ha- I'm happy with bumping this up. And I think that a seven, uh, whereas an eight was a bit high for ordeal by innocence and plot mechanics, I think a seven is low. And I think this should actually be much higher. I would give it at least an eight. Oh, at least an eight. I agree. Absolutely. Yes. I would give it an eight for plot mechanics and potentially even bump up the book specific characters from a five to a six, or I might give it a nine for plot mechanics. What do you feel about giving it a nine? Well, what else have we given a nine to? Um, and then there were none and five little pigs murders announced. I'm not quite sure that the plot mechanics are as good as the murders announced. You're right. You're right. I, you know what? I was I, I was getting, I think, a little carried away. I think an eight actually is exactly what the plot mechanics deserve. But I think a five for book specific characters is a little bit low. Um, I do too. Okay. I, mean, I think I think that um, the couple, Hilda and her husband, and they unfortunately were left out of the TV version. I think they're great. And I've always loved that scene um, before the murder happens at all. And he has gathered, gathered all his family together to taunt them, essentially. Mm-hmm. And she comes back and stands over him and says, I'm afraid. And he says, you're afraid of me. And she says, no, I'm afraid for you. A great line. Yes. So very Christie-ish. And also, you know, Simeon Lee is one of those characters that I will never forget. He's just easily recalled, I think, among the pantheon of Christie characters. For all the wrong reasons. Yes. So even just for him alone, I think I think a five really is low. So uh, let's bump that up to a six, which would give this 32 points overall. And in that case, I actually think, and this is why I was saying we we might um, reconfigure Ordeal by Innocence. I think that Hercule Poirot's Christmas should be above Ordeal by Innocence, but just below Lord Edgware Dies. Well, okay, we'll compromise on that, yeah. <laughs> Would you put it above Lord Edgware Dies? Um, 
No, no, you're right. Right. I I think it, but I think it's close. (laughs) Like, I I think the fact that they're neck and neck is appropriate. It's very close. Yeah. And just going back to Simeon Lee for a moment, I I think it's interesting and I don't have any explanation for this, that her, probably her two most detestable characters are Mm. Simeon Lee and Mrs. Boynton, both in books published in 1938. Yeah. What was happening in 1938? She was, I don't uh... don't know. (laughs) That was quite a happy time in her life, all of the 30s after she married again. But anyway, that's just an aside that I just found quite intriguing. The hideous matriarch and the hideous patriarch. That's, and they really are. Right. And she's, she, you know, has, she did those characters before and she would do them again. But I think, uh, you know, Jefferson Conway comes to mind, for example, but not so memorably. Like those are, those really are the two standouts and it is interesting that they're published in the same. Oh, they are. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Okay. So we now have Hercule Poirot's Christmas in 22nd place in the top third. I'm very, very happy about that. Yes. I think it does deserve to be in the top third. Sparkling Cyanide is our 33rd title here, rounding out our top half. And I suppose that we can now move on to the bottom half of Christie titles. And I'm just going to review titles 34 through 40 and see where we stand with them. So in descending order, we have They Do It With Mirrors, A Caribbean Mystery, Nemesis, A Pocket Full of Rye, Sleeping Murder, The Man in the Brown Suit, and NRM. And this is very strange, and I don't know how I feel about this, but the fact that we have all of these Miss Marple novels clumped together here, titles 34 through 38. I don't necessarily like it, and I don't actually think they're in the correct order. So there's going to be a bit of rejiggering that needs to be done. But I think it's very interesting that these Miss Marple titles all fall at the midway point in the rankings. I think that's appropriate because the Miss Marple titles tend not to be among the most brilliant when it comes to plot mechanics and even plot mm-hmm. credibility, but they are all extremely well-written, extremely enjoyable. And among my favorites, I'm a Marpleite. I prefer Miss Marple to Poirot. So I actually think that it's okay where they're falling in a macro way in the rankings, but I'm not sure that they're in precisely the correct order. So you would leave them there in the same five, a group of five. Not necessarily. Here's here's what I think. I think they do it with mirrors is way too high. They do it with mirrors strikes me as one of the few Christie's that's a little too easy to solve. And a lot of people have written in about how flat they feel that book is uncharacteristically for Christie. It's all there. It's it's a functional detective novel, but I just don't think it's one of her most scintillating. I wouldn't argue with that. So, so would you, I would certainly put Pocketful of Rye above it. I would. Well, so here's the thing. I think that A Pocketful of Rye and Nemesis, to a certain extent, uh, and it hasn't been that long since I covered Nemesis for the podcast, but I was really surprised by how much I liked <laughs> Nemesis. I think it's Christie's last brilliant novel. Like, I think it's the last really good novel that she wrote. And I quite enjoyed it. I mean, we gave it a 10 for series long characters that's obviously for miss marple because it really is just a superlative miss marple novel and i think it should certainly be above a caribbean mystery and they do it with mirrors okay well here comes our serious falling out okay (laughs) because i'm gobsmacked that nemesis would be that high up on it because i would put nemesis as the least interesting miss marple novel 
Yeah, yeah, I know. I was listening to yourself and Jamie discussing it, and I was thinking, I think we, I must have read a different book to those two. <laughs> it's really disappointing, and it goes on and on and on about almost nothing. And I mean, the whole idea of the of the body and the whatever the name of the plant is growing over it, and the three sisters. It's just not interesting, and it takes so long to get to the destination that it's and it's not worth the effort. So, and the series characters, why on earth do the series characters get ten in that, and only seven, for instance, in Death on the Nile? Is that nine for Miss Marple and one for everybody else? <laughs> well, no, no. So that's the series long characters, as in Miss Marple. I mean, the ten is for Miss Marple, and then book specific characters have a six. But so are you saying then, or whoever gave it to yourself and Catherine gave it to 10, that it is the best Miss Marple? I think you could make that argument. Yes. Because well, this is... Be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Miss Marple where she fully comes into her own, almost as a quasi-professional investigator. I mean, she's being hired. She's being hired to solve this mystery. She actually gets paid at the end of it, I, I, which I absolutely loved. It felt like the evolution of Miss Marple as an investigator and, and sort of the, the, the end point that she deserved. And that too, I find it to be a very moving final Miss Marple novel. And Tony and I talked a lot about that, how Nemesis really is the final Miss Marple novel. It's not Sleeping Murder, even though it's subtitled Miss Marple's oh, final case. I think the ending, that that final scene in Nemesis, when Miss Marple collects her money and she says she's going to enjoy herself and she looks like a younger version of who mm. she was and she just sort of disappears into the ether as this, this immortal deity, the immortal deity that she is. It's so, it's the counterpoint to Curtin, right? And Poirot's uh, very mortal and tortured ending. And I love that she does that. And I think everyone talks about how brilliant curtain is as a final poirot and then they uh, very wrongly point to how bad sleeping murder is as the final miss marble well not wrongly because that's how it's been billed to them it shouldn't have been but if you just substitute nemesis there and say no 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 this is the final miss marple i think she's doing something almost equally brilliant character wise as to miss marple in nemesis i will grant you the plotting is not among her best. And this is where we see the bagginess of the late career Christie coming yeah. into play. But the, but the book, that's why I say, I think it's her last brilliant book. She still has it. She's losing it. It's almost lost and it's going to be lost for all of the books that come after it, unfortunately, to varying degrees. But I, I think that Nemesis still feels like a Christie novel, you know, a, a typical Christie novel in, in all of the wonderful ways that Christie novels function for mystery readers, even though well, it's not, you know, the plotting certainly is not among her best. I will grant you that. That's why it has, it has a six and a three for plot mechanics and plot credibility. I think that three for plot credibility, by the way, is, is way too low. I think that that needs to come up. I want, I want Nemesis to be a little bit higher in the rankings, John. So you would actually push it down lower. Oh, I would push it way down. I mean, as it stands at the moment, it's better in inverted commas then one, two, buckle my shoe, the mirror cracked, death in the clouds. Surely not. Oh, I think I think it is. Do I think you? I do. I, I mean, I think one, two, buckle my shoe is a really interesting but but deeply flawed novel and even even mystery. It's one of those that feels like a hybrid mystery thriller 
there, there's a lot that works in that novel, but I think a lot that doesn't work. And you can say the same thing about Nemesis, but for me, the characterization and especially as to Miss Marple that she's doing is why I cherish Nemesis so much more. Not even, a, not, it's not even a, a competition between Nemesis and One Two Buckle My Shoe. No, you're right. One Two Buckle My Shoe is far better. <laughs> I mean, the fact alone that the elderly murderer rolls a rock down a hill it has to lose nine out of those 10 points. I mean, it is ridiculous. Now, it wasn't an awful lot better when it happened in Death on the Nile, but at least I wasn't an elderly woman. <laughs> well, and by the way, I mean, when you were saying it takes forever to get to where yeah. it's going in terms of the murder plot, well, you can say the same thing about Appointment with Death, couldn't you? I know, but there, there are interesting things happening up to that. You know, there's a discussion about opportunity and alibis and clues. There's nothing like that in Nemesis. Oh, virtually nothing like that. In well, you, but you have Miss Marple. You have Miss Marple being active. And I know the characters on the tour bus, it's shocking and perhaps a little horrifying that they don't turn out to have anything to do. Yeah, exactly. But I, I enjoyed the ride. I was right there on the bus with Miss Marple and I was so happy to be there. Some people feel that way about Appointment with Death, that it, the, the tedium. The, I don't because I think that family is, is fascinating and it's kind of the psychological um, preoccupations of that, of that book work, I think, even though they have nothing to do with how the mystery is solved. Um, and that is a reason why it isn't among her best. And you, Just to digress for a moment, are you familiar yeah. with the stage version of Appointment with Death? I am. And I think that it's brilliant. And I wish that yeah. she had revised the book. And it's a far more convincing solution. Yes. But that's an argument for another day. Well, I think we're going to fall out over Nemesis because I would never, ever, ever put it in that position. And you you would never, never not put it in that position. That's true. Well, you know what? Then I'm going to be less aggressive about moving it up. I wasn't even going to move it up that much. What I actually feel more strongly about, and it sounds like you agree, is that they do it with mirrors is too high. <laughs> it's just... Once you've read all the Christie's, it's just, it doesn't stand out. Um, no, I, it's certainly not a major Marple or a major detective novel, but I, I would still say it's better than Nemesis. Oh, I mean, I John. Say, almost, John. I mean, yes, any Miss Marple is better than Nemesis. I mean, you're saying that Nemesis is better than The Mirror Cracked from Side to Side. I think so. I, I actually think The Mirror Cracked from Side to Side might be a bit low as well. The mirror cracked from side to side also, I think, is um, a very flawed mystery. No, I wouldn't argue with that. But at the moment, you're saying Nemesis is better than it. I think Nemesis is better than that because of Miss Marple in Nemesis, as opposed to the mirror crack from side to side. She's good in the mirror crack from side to side, but I think she's much better in Nemesis. I think what Christie's doing with her, and again, given that it's the final Marple and the emotional resonance that the book has for me, clearly not for you. No, um, I guess I just, I guess I just appreciate Miss Marple and have a greater understanding of her. That's fine. <laughs> well, we'll have to agree to differ. And the next time that we have this, I get the upper hand. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm not, so I'm not going to move it then. I think that's, that's interesting. I'd actually like to hear 
from other listeners as well. So write in, you know, email me, or if you contact me on Twitter, John isn't going to see it, but I'm going to let him know what you have to say. And I'm curious. You can let me know only if they agree with me. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. But I'm curious that, that you feel that way because I'm sure you're not alone. And I actually understand your viewpoint. Yes. I don't agree with it be, again, because I think I, Nemesis's significance as the final Miss Marple is just not to be undervalued. And I think that Christie handles it beautifully in that book. And, and that's why I really love well, it. Yeah. And, and that hasn't changed in the many months that have passed since I read it. Well, I think this probably comes back to the fundamental discussion we had earlier on as a, a novel versus a detective novel. True. Very much so. By no means can you dis- can you really consider Nemesis as a detective novel. This is very true. And really, as you get into the later Christie's, I think you have to broaden out <laughs> how you're scoring some of these books. Or, or perhaps you don't actually, which is why a lot of them do score a lot lower. But there is more to a lot of these Christie novels, I think, than the puzzle making. No, I would agree. There is more to a lot of them. But for me, the puzzle making would always supersede everything else. I mean, if you've got a good setting or an interesting character or good writing, that's just an added extra. But if, for me, if the plot doesn't stand up or doesn't exist in the case of Nemesis, but then I'm automatically <laughs> going to score very low. Because I'm just looking at the list here, and Kemper, answer me this honestly, is it pure coincidence that the only two novels to get 10 for series characters are both Miss Marples? <laughs> I never realised that. Mm-hmm. Right. Nemesis and a murder is announced. That's mm-hmm. really interesting. We rarely gave out tens, but we get, we've given out a 10 in plot mechanics for murder of Roger Ackroyd, which I think is granted a 10 in book specific characters for five little pigs. And oh, I know. But just for the series characters. Yeah. We've never given a 10 for Poirot, have we? No, no. Hmm. So he's probably much of a muchness in the vast majority of the books because he is only a, he is really a means to an end i mean he's he's the detective capital t capital d but as well, a character know, he's sorry, not really all that much is he well we did give him a 9 out of 10 in curtain and i think perhaps that's the one where if he were ever going to get a 10 it would probably be in that novel Yes, I agree. But sadly, that's the one where he dies. So it's <laughs> it's a last minute reprieve, if you like, for him. But anyway, we're we're digressing. You're yeah. not going to change your mind about Nemesis, I can plainly hear. So, <laughs> well, I would let's at least bump. They do it with mirrors down slightly. I would be okay actually giving it a four <laughs> for plot mechanics as opposed to a five. Or perhaps bumping down book-specific characters as well. Let me see. If it had 28 points, I would be all right putting it, for example, between NRM and The Secret Adversary. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Although I would rather move Nemesis down there. But that's not going, <laughs> clearly, that's not going to happen. So. Well, you know what, John? Consider it a win that Nemesis isn't getting bumped up. That's my concession. That's very (laughs) true. (laughs) All right. So I've given, they do it with mirrors, a four in plot mechanics and a six in book specific characters. So it now has a 28. I'm going to put it between NRM and the secret adversary. So you still have a clump of Miss Marples. I do. Although now, well, that's being taken a little bit out of the, out of the clump, at least as to ranking, if not scoring. Right. Okay. I'll concede that point, which I think is very generous of me. 
Yeah, I mean, by the way, if I had my way, John, I would put Nemesis above Dead Man's Folly and just below the Mysterious Affair at Styles, just to horrify you fully. I could be, but very unlikely to be more horrified, I have to say. I mean, I'm I'm banging my head off a wall talking to you about Nemesis, I can plainly see. <laughs> I want to turn to one of our listeners who made a case for NRM being bumped up. And I am actually, <laughs> I don't think that I agree with what he has to say, but I wanted to air it because I thought it was interesting. And I wanted to get your opinion on this because this might be the only time that we actually speak substantively about poor Tommy and Tuppence Beresford. So this is what uh, this listener had to say. My case for NRM being bumped up is that there isn't a single Tommy and Tuppence in the top half. I understand those books are just not of the same caliber as Poirot or Marple or the standalones, but I think NRM has quite a lot going for it. You only gave it a four in plot mechanics, which is the same score you gave for By the Pricking of My Thumbs and at Bertram's Hotel. NRM is clearly superior in this regard and has far fewer flaws than By the Pricking of My Thumbs. It actually is possible to identify N and M, given the clues in the novel and certain aspects, such as the real mother of a child never would have shot in her direction, are very clever and unique to this novel. I think those are all excellent points. I just don't really think that NRM should be above any of those Marple novels, the clump of Marple novels uh, that we have sitting above it, which is why I'm perfectly fine with where it is. And I'm also, I, I, with apologies to the Beresfords, I'm absolutely fine with none of the Tommy and Tuppence's being in the top half, but I think it is important that NRM be the top Tommy and Tuppence overall. I, I agree. Yes, absolutely. I agree. Okay. So I just wanted to make sure a little justice for NRM. Catherine had a lot of affection for NRM, and I do too. And and I actually think it's true that that clue about the mother and the child and that very dramatic scene in which she's being shot at is very well done. That's very, very well done. But you see, I, I hear you again saying I have a lot of affection for that book. That shouldn't come into it, Kemper. Well, it's the overall reading experience, John. It can be, affection can be part of what we're ranking and scoring here. That's why our setting and tone category is a little bit of a catch-all. I'm sorry for the fuzziness of that. I know I know that this irks you, but... You should be able to stand back and look at it cold-bloodedly. <laughs> we're we're anyway, a warm-blooded just... species, John. I, I like to <laughs> lean into my humanity. <laughs> well, that's put me in that place. Thank you. <laughs> um, now, can we turn to the man in the brown suit? Yes, sure. I don't know why it's rated more highly than One Two Buckle My Shoe or Death in the Clouds, for instance. I fear I'm going to have to bring up the the dreaded A word. That would be my overweening affection for <gasps> the man in the brown suit. I well, I just think it's her most successful thriller. No, uh, uh, major argument coming up on that point. Oh, yes. I do know. I do know. Mm -hmm. We've talked a bit about this offline. Do you have a specific reason for disliking the man in the brown suit? Oh, no, I don't dislike it. I think it's very readable and has lots of clever ideas. But I just don't think it's a better book from any point of view than, for instance, Death in the Clouds, One, Two, Book for My Shoe, even Murder on the Links. Not to mention the other, the really best thriller she ever wrote, which is Why Didn't They Ask Evans? 
I will admit that why didn't they ask Evans is a little low. So we will be getting to that, but we do, we haven't even, it's so low in the rankings. We haven't even gotten there yet, but rest assured, we, we will discuss that. Um, And you are not alone. You are very much not alone in that opinion. Many people have contacted me about their affection for why didn't they ask Evans, but you know, the man in the Brown suit, I don't know. I, I, I feel like it's just been a podcast favorite since we covered it, which at this point is many, many, many years ago, since it's one of the earliest Christie's, I think it's her most successful of those larky 20s thrillers where she was just having a good time or at least trying to convey the idea of having a good time. In some of the others, I think it just it comes off as a little bit brittle or unconvincing, but it probably has to do with the narrative voice of Anne. I think that she is a a highly delightful and charming and convincing narrator. And then also the trick that is a little bit of a precursor to the murder of Roger Ackroyd, right? Yeah. I'm not saying it's not a good book. I think it is a good book, if even only for the the Roger Ackroyd connection alone. But I still don't think it's better than the other three or four books that I mentioned. Um, so your it sounds like your issue more is is with the fact that one two buckle my shoe the mirror cracked from side to side and death in the clouds are a little low. Oh, they are. Yeah, you would well, raise them. Well, where would you put them in relation to that glut of marples? <laughs> oh, I would put most of them ahead of the glut. I'd certainly put it ahead of one of the glut, but we won't go there again. <laughs> <laughs> I don't disagree with you necessarily as to the mirror crack from side to side. I can't really think of why it's as flawed as we clearly thought that it was when we were ranking it. Uh, other than the fact that the the mystery as to the German measles of it all, and you know, we get into the Gene Tierney debacle, I think it takes away from well, we do, that we book. Do, we do now, but that wouldn't have been noted, would it, in nineteen sixty two? I certainly didn't know about it the first time I read the book. I will. And it's funny. I think that people nowadays probably don't know about it either. I don't think that your average reader is going to be familiar with the travails of Jean Tierney, who uh, unfortunately as an actress is someone who's been largely lost to the sands of time, even though she was a fantastic actress. But, um, but I do, And I also don't think Agatha Christie would have been aware of it. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, it, and she she claimed not to be. I still think that there might have been a little bit of cultural osmosis going on there where she had read something about that story and also the Dutch royal family where there was an, another instance of, of the same thing happening less catastrophically. And perhaps it just was something that she drew on without knowing that she drew on it. I don't think that she consciously did it. And maybe it's no. just a coincidence. Coincidences do happen all the time. I agree, but I I still think it takes away. I mean, this is one where I believe Dorothy Olding, when she read the manuscript, she wrote, because initially Christy had to pull back on the cluing and she had mentioned German measles early on in the book and Dorothy yeah. Olding knew right away where yeah, she was going with that, right? But Dorothy Olding, first of all, was an American and secondly, was of a certain age. So she would be more likely to know that than the vast majority of Christie's readers. It's true, but it's a little alarming, I think, that she was able to... I think it's a little alarming that this is one of the few books where Christy had to play around with her cluing and 
and hold her cards closer to the vest, as it were, um, yeah. than she wanted to initially. That gives me a lot of pause when singing the the praises of the puzzle in this mystery. I think that that shows that there's a weakness there, an uncharacteristic well, weakness. Although I agree, I mean, I wouldn't put it up in the top 33 even, but I do, I do think it is better than the one we're talking about, the man in the brown suit. Man in the brown suit. Oh, I agree. I mean, I think all I'm, and you'll disagree with this statement, but all I would like to preserve is that the man in the brown suit is the highest of the thrillers. Don't worry. I think, I think why didn't they ask Evans can be bumped up a bit, but I, I'm not interested in the man in the brown suit descending lower in the rankings. But I actually think that the mirror cracked from side to side probably deserves to be a little bit higher because it strikes me as fitting in with that glut of Miss Marples, actually. There's no reason why the mirror cracked from side to side, I think, should be lower than any of those no. other marbles. No, yeah. no, I agree. Absolutely. Well, in that so case, what, hey, yeah, how can we... We really only have to bump it up one point, which I think is pretty easily done. We gave it a six for plot mechanics and a three for plot credibility. And I actually think a three is pretty low for plot credibility. Low. Yeah, it's very, that's three out of ten. I mean, what's what's incredible about it? What's incredible about it are all of the subsequent murders. It's almost unclear. And actually, I'd love to ask your opinion about this, because I think this is up for debate as a, a fellow avid uh, and frequent reader of these Christie novels. It's almost a little unclear whether or not it's Marina or her husband who even commits those future murders. And the fact that there is some wiggle room there is just atrocious, I think. But that, that never crossed my mind. Why would you think that? Because the first murder, I think, is very convincing that Marina did it because it's a spur of the moment murder, right? She did yes. it. She's furious. And in the moment, she just, you know, she hands her the drink. It's done. Yeah. And then I guess you could say in that she's covering up, you know, the the, the subsequent murders are all cover-ups. I just don't yeah. believe that Marina Gregg is doing those murders. I would believe, I actually think if I were Christie's editor and I were given, and I had received that manuscript beyond the German measles of it all, I would say, could this a little bit become a two-hander where then her husband steps in and actually becomes her co-conspirator and is the one who does the cover-up murders because he doesn't want to see her go to jail? Because I just don't believe that she did those. I really don't. But how would he know that she had she was being blackmailed? Agree. I mean, I think you would have to finesse that. There would have to be he he maybe figured out that she committed the first murder and then he she's forced, you know, to But then why would he then kill Ella Zalinsky? He wouldn't in theory he doesn't even know that she's blackmailing Marina. It would it would be a major change. I mean, Marina would have to basically bring him into the fold, which would be frustrating because there that would mean that there was a lot going on off the page that we weren't privy to, that we would well, just have to be I mean. told so about. There's, there's no good reason to suppose that, is there? But do you agree with me that those the the second and third murders I don't think are particularly believable as to Marina? They they felt a little bit not as bad as the ordeal by innocence murders. They're not tacked on in the same way, but they they feel very no, much I, lesser than that first. I agree, one. but then I, I I agree, but I go back to the quote from Ariadne Oliver, who said that about writing her own detective novels that you find that you're fifty pages short and you have to go back in and put one or two murders. A lot of later Christie novels have that one or two murders tagged on, they but there's no reason to suppose that somebody else carried them out on on the murderer's behalf. I wouldn't see any justification for thinking along those lines. 
Interesting. It's as to character, because I'm just not convinced that Marina Gregg, as Christie portrays her, would actually commit those murders in cover up the way that she does. Especially, doesn't she shoot the, the third murder? It's a shooting in the back. She shoots the butler, yeah. I just, that just seems completely unbelievable to me. So is that why you scored it? What did you give it for plot credibility, six? We, no, we gave it a three. I think, oh, but, but a three is way too low. I think we can certainly bump that up to a four. No question. And that would give it 28 points, which means that we can put it further up with those other Christie's. And I'm fine with putting it above the man in the brown suit, actually. Oh. Um, would you put it above or below Sleeping Murder? I would put it below Sleeping Murder. I would, too. I would, too. Oh, thank God. We agree on something. <laughs> All right. So the mirror cracked from side to side is now in 38th place between sleeping murder and the man in the brown suit. One, two buckle my shoe. I just don't really like that book very much. And it doesn't, it, it certainly has not stood the test of time for me very well in that it doesn't stand out in a good way. If anything, it stands out in a little bit of a bad way for me. But tell me well, why you esteem One Two Buckle My Shoe, because I think it deserves its due. Well, I think it's, it is probably one of her most complex plots alongside mm-hmm. um, Taken at the Flood. But mm-hmm. when you get the explanation, I think it's it's clever. And I also love the fact that she does a bluff, a double bluff, a triple bluff about the identity of the corpse. And surely... It has to be one of the most original motivations for murder to swap file cards, which is essentially what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think I think it's very clever. And I mean, I know we've got somebody playing th- not just two parts, but three parts. And yes. in fact, when in the David Suchet version, they did that so fairly that a friend of mine was watching it with his wife. And his even though she wasn't a big Christie fan, but she didn't spot the fact that there was a disguise on the screen in front of her. She never spotted it. So I've always had a lot of respect for one, two, book of my shoe. The one bit that I don't think works is trying to shoehorn in the nursery rhyme. Yes, it, the nursery rhyme is so bad in, in that one. Work. Agreed. And and by the way, that's one reason why A Pocket Full of Rye is so brilliant, because she's she's playing yeah. with the expectation that she's yeah. doing what she did in one, two, buckle my shoe as to the nursery rhyme, but then she's not. <laughs> or no, the murderer The murderer is. The murderer is basically doing what Christy did in one, two, buckle my shoe in a pocket full of rye, which is very clever. You know, looking at this, I'm fine. It, th- those are all valid points. The plotting, especially the, the trickery as to the identity of the corpse. Yeah. It's one of those, yeah. your head kind of spins as you try to even work it out and you have to like almost write it down <laughs> to keep it straight. I think that it certainly could be above the secret adversary and they do it with mirrors. I think it should be above they do oh, it with sure. mirrors, in oh, fact. Absolutely. I mean, you've only given it four for plot credibility. Why was that? Because it's a very clever puzzle but mm-hmm. I don't know if I believe much of what any of the people in that story do. And I, and to be honest with you, it's one of those novels where I can barely even remember any of the characters because they are so unmemorable. And that does affect plot credibility, even though that is still a plotting category. It's why the book specific characters got a five, which I think was probably being kind. I just, I think it's a clever puzzle, but as a book, 
that's I, again, this is a little bit of, you know, piece of detective fiction versus a book. I didn't feel like she was pulling it off as a coherent whole, especially because we have that very political thrillerish reason for why this is all happening at the end. And that did not, I think anytime you have those elements of political thriller in, in Christie, it becomes a little difficult to believe. And it's where I start rolling my eyes that, or at least raising my eyebrows a little bit. But in, in to a certain extent, the political aspect is a red herring. I mean, the original, the motivation for the murder is a good old eternal triangle. She camouflages it so well. And because the killer is an eminent politician. That's true. Um, well, I, I think you've done, you've done it a disservice. I would put it... I would put it up in at least 30, if not in the 30s. I mean, I think it's a better detective novel than Cat Among the Pigeons. You have a lot of affection for Cat Among the Pigeons. <laughs> well, and you know what? This is a perfect time to to bring another listener here into the conversation because this is a, a different person who emailed me knowing that the rankings episode was coming up. And this is what he had to say about a couple of the titles that we've just been discussing. Two books that you put firmly in the upper half and for me belong lower are Cat Among the Pigeons and Dead Man's Folly. I enjoy reading the first one for its setting and characters, but as a mystery, it is very subpar. There are exactly zero clues as to the murderer's identity, and Poirot appears in only a handful of pages and does not contribute almost anything to the plot. Dead Man's Folly is much more solid, but also dull, with no memorable book-specific characters and nothing particularly clever about the solution. Ariadne Oliver is the best thing about it by far. A more extreme case is regarding They Do It With Mirrors, which for you is middle of the road and for me is almost the worst of the pure puzzle mysteries, not because of anything actively bad with it, but because of how lackluster and forgettable it is in all its aspects. I think we've dealt with They Do It With Mirrors, and I very much agree with this listener about that. And Dead Man's Folly, too. I, I actually think that Dead Man's Folly is fine where it is because it's sitting in... Uh, 30 yeah. seconds uh, in the 30 second spot so it's at the very very lower end of the of the first half mm -hmm. and i think that's where it belongs but it is a somewhat unremarkable christie perfectly successful both as a piece of detective fiction and i think as a book overall I, yeah i wouldn't disagree with that at all but i would um if i can make even though i don't think catamount the pigeons deserves to be where it is i do think it deserves more attention because it does have a unique solution to murderers working independently. Mm -hmm. Yes, that is very tricky. It's all, it doesn't feel unfair, but it's, it's a trickier solution than it seems like it's going to have. Your correspondent is absolutely right. There are no clues. You can't work it out. Well, and that one too has a little bit of a, of a thrillerish feel to it because oh, we yes. have that whole very international much. opening and the jewels, et cetera, et cetera. Very, very much so. And I have to say all that carry on with the tennis rackets is totally unconvincing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have a suggestion. Let's swap Cat Among the Pigeons and one, two, buckle my shoe. Oh, John. <laughs> I told you this was going to be a difficult podcast. <laughs> well, it's funny. I, I again, I really have a lot of affection for Cat Among the Pigeons, but I'll, I'll back that up with something solid, which is that I felt I remember another listener wrote in when we were covering Cat Among the Pigeons and she called it a turducken of a novel. I don't know if you're familiar with a turducken. No, spell that. A turducken is this rather disgusting food item that people make on holidays, on Thanksgiving or Christmas, when you basically just want to have meat upon meat upon meat, where you take, I suppose it's a chicken stuffed into a duck, stuffed into a turkey. 
So it's three animals stuffed into one. And that is a little bit how Cat Among the Pigeons feels because it's almost mm-hmm. as though she's taken something more classic, a classic-ish puzzle mystery, even though it's not really clued, and stuffing it into one of her thrillers. And it shouldn't work. It should be a mess. But I found it to be delicious, as perhaps the best turduckens really are. And I just remember being surprised by how much I enjoyed that book and the reading experience overall. But it's true. Poirot comes in super late. I do think that her characters, the the book specific characters are really good. It's one of, you know, the best, I think, among her middle late books when it comes to um, the book specific characters, because she has such a good time, I think, portraying this girl's secondary school and, you know, the headmistress, Miss Bulstrode, and all of the teachers, Miss Vansittart. It's so easy for me to recall all of these people and even the the children to a certain extent. Some of them are better than others. But Julia Upjohn, I think, was a very well-rendered child, one of her more convincingly rendered teenagers. And she has, I think, some duds, actually actually, in the overall when it comes to teenagers, even in books as good as Evil Under the Sun, for example. And it also the includes in the, the idea of somebody looking over their shoulder or looking over the shoulder of another character and seeing something significant, which comes back into play then in, in the solution. Yep. But I would still say One Two Book of My Shoe is a better book. Uh, well... I'm not letting you away with this one. We we can certainly, I'm fine. Like I said, I'm fine with moving one, two buckle my shoe up a little bit because I think you're right that it is a little bit low and it certainly doesn't deserve to be lower than they do it with mirrors. And I would even be fine. Again, the man in the brown suit in NRM, I'm more interested in where they are in relation to the other thrillers and Tommy and Tuppence novels in the rankings. So I'm also fine with one, two buckle my shoe being above those titles. I do not think that it should be above any of those marbles though. So I'm, I'm willing to go from 43rd place to at least 39th place. So it has a three in front of it, John. I hope that that will warm your heart at least a little bit. Cold comfort, perhaps. I'm not not going to do any better. Am I? I mean, (laughs) Miss Marple rules your world quite clearly. (laughs) <laughs> she does. Dark Marple is ascendant and she is she is not letting go. She's basically just the puppeteer who is pulling the strings here on this episode. I can merely do her bidding, but I will bump up one, two buckle my shoe. And I'm, and I'm glad to have a passionate advocate for one, two buckle my shoe on this podcast, because we certainly haven't had one up until now. And it's a bit shocking, but interesting as different viewpoints so often are. So, all right, we've moved up one, two buckle my shoe. And I hear the listener's point and yours really about cat among the pigeons, but I, I actually would be willing to reverse at the very least cat among the pigeons and the Sitterford mystery, because I have a lot of regard for the Sitterford mystery. How do you feel about that one, John? Um, I'm not overly fond of it. I, I think the underlying plot device is very clever. Mm-hmm. The fooling of the reader is done very subtly, but very fairly. Yeah. But for the rest of it, all that bit about the escaped convict is a bit Hound of the Baskervilles-ish. Yes. And the seance idea is a great, very clever idea. And I do like Emily, but I think that there's a lot of what you might call padding around the very clever central idea, which very few people will guess even in this day and age. But it is there for you to see. And also the motive is quite clever and original. 
That's what I was just going to say. I think I, for me, it's one of those books when I when I sit down and start thinking about what it has going for it, it just seems to be so much because the the skiing trick is very hard, I think, to guess. And, and I would defy most people. Although I do have a, a very good friend who I remember I was with her while she was reading The Sitterford Mystery and she guessed that it had to do with skis actually before she got to the end. So good for her. But that's very, very clever. And the motive, I was just thinking about this the other day, but the fact that the motive rests on prize winnings mm. being sent to the colonel's house and 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 that he would kill for 5,000 pounds, which is believable, but just so easily overlooked. She gives us oh. that information about the winnings, but I defy anyone to realize that that is what lies at the heart of that murder. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. And you get that information very early on. No, totally. So I'm going to switch for the sake for the sake of our listener, if not you, John, I'm going to switch uh, oh. Cat Among the Pigeons and the Sitterford Mystery so that uh, the Sitterford Mystery will be at 28th and Cat Among the Pigeons in 29th place. Well, now we are in our bottom third here of titles. Mm -hmm. I am going to read out our titles in 44th through 50th place. And let's see how we feel about these titles. We've got Death in the Clouds, Murder in Mesopotamia, Murder is Easy, The Moving Finger, Third Girl, Dumb Witness, and Halloween Party. Could I actually start us off? Because I think I know that Catherine was always interested in bumping up Murder is Easy as much as possible. And given that I have continued with my relentless campaign to goose Hercule Poirot's Christmas up in the rankings, I feel duty bound to at least move Murder is Easy up one spot. I would have no problem with switching Murder is Easy and Murder in Mesopotamia. But I'm curious how you feel about Murder is Easy as a title, John. It's a very exciting book, but I don't think the reader, apart from instinct, the reader has no hope of work, working out who does. <laughs> yes, that is true. Um, but it is, it's mass slaughter. And um, I, I just have a look here and see, what did you give it on plot credibility? A six. Mm, I think that's a bit generous, I have to say. I think that is, I actually think that is generous, but I, I'm not really interested in changing its score, but we do occasionally do this where I think that the, a six is not really very fair. I think it at least should get a five, but I also mm -hmm. don't think that its plot mechanics necessarily deserve a four. I mean, I think a five and a five makes more sense than a yes, four. It won't, affect it. it won't affect its placing, its ranking. Yeah, it won't affect its, its its ranking, but I would I would like to move it above Murder in Mesopotamia. Murder in Mesopotamia is one of those books that, again, I said it has it's an elegant locked room mystery. It's such a great puzzle. This is the only one that we've given in plot credibility for any book, and I'm sorry, but I'm I'm committed to that one because it's it's just not believable to no, not know no. that your second husband is in fact no. your first husband. No. It's just ridiculous. No, I, I agree. That is completely unacceptable. And I just wonder how A, Christy herself thought it was acceptable, but B, her editor thought it was acceptable. Because at that stage, 1936, she wasn't at the eminence which she was later to read. So I don't know why they didn't argue the point with her because it is, it's ludicrous. Do the notes for that one, Do are there notes for that one? Murder oh, there are notes of that one, yes, yeah. And it's quite intriguing because at one point in the notes, um, she has a note to herself and it's open to, 
to um, interpretation. I'm not sure to this day whether it's can we work in the window idea or can we work on the window idea? Huh. Either, would, either would fit because, as we know, the window is the answer to the whole puzzle of the locked room aspect of it. And I think that aspect of it is very, very clever. Oh, it is. I mean, if she had if she had just preserved yeah. the locked room mystery and not included the husband business, yeah. it, what's what's so frustrating about it is that it also as to this is why we gave it an eight for setting and tone. It's it's fantastic. It's one of her most fabulous books set in Absolutely. the Middle East, right? And as far as I as far as I know, it's unique in detective fiction, certainly of that era. There's nobody else. And of course, she was writing from firsthand experience. Yep. And it's also a rare example of a female first person narrator. And I have a lot of affection for Amy mm-hmm. Leatherin. I think she oh, is, she's a great narrative voice. It has everything going for it. And then it just has this one gaping. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So. And it does, it, it's such a, a serious flaw that it almost negates the rest of the book, which is a terrible shame because it has so much, so many good points. Yeah, if not for that flaw, Murder in Mesopotamia would yeah. be certainly in the top 20, maybe even in the top 10, but without yeah, a doubt in the top 20. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I do want to take issue with one. Please. Third Girl. How on earth did Third Girl end up in 48 place? You think that's too high? Oh, way too high. That should be down in the bottom in the bottom <laughs> 10. It's, it's lewd. The plot is ridiculous. Yes, I think this is a case of adjusting one's expectations. I think I was so nervous about reading these later career Christie's and worried that they would be just absolutely abominable. And they're with with a few exceptions, they're not. And I think third girl, I think it's a, I think you're overstating it a bit to say it doesn't make sense. I think it does make sense. It's just a bit of a rambling mess is all. Well, no, I'm talking about the actual mechanics of the plot. With the one person playing two parts. I mean, it's just not credible or feasible or even practical. <laughs> well, that's, my, that's my problem with it. I mean, I did make the point in Secret Notebooks that towards the end of her writing career, the last, we'll say, 10 years, it wasn't that she ran short of ideas, but she ran short of the ability to develop those ideas in the way she would have 20 or 30 years earlier. Mm-hmm. So while the idea of Third Girl is not at all bad, but it's the working out of the plot that just, it just doesn't work. Well, she did something similar, for example, in After the Funeral, but it was only one scene, right? And it was exactly. someone who was heavily clothed and exactly. it's exactly. still a little hard to believe even in After the Funeral, but you can certainly get past it, right? Well, but you have to remember that After the Funeral, the, the character hadn't been seen by most of the people there for, what, 20 plus years. So sure. it, was, it was a lot more credible. But this one is just not credible at all. Maybe she's just a really good actress. Well, she must have, in some cases, she must have almost powers of bilocation. I mean, it, it just, it doesn't work for me at all. I would have it way down in the low, in the bottom 10. I do think that you can feel, and I wonder if you would agree with this, John, that it feels like one of the, one impetus for Third Girl was that she wanted to play around with the idea of flats where furniture or fixtures are similar from floor to floor and that somehow coming into play in the murder. And she does have an element of that with the numbers on the door, but it felt like 
if she had all of her faculties or had been at the height of her powers, she might have have developed that a bit more. It it seems yeah. like uh, just something that an, an element of the mystery that doesn't quite go where it was supposed to go. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And I also think it was her attempt to drag herself into the swinging 60s. And I'm not really convinced it works. I mean, considering that she was in her mid to late 70s at the time, it's a, it's a very commendable effort. But I'm not really sure that it captured London of the swinging 60s. Well, it kind of captures being in a drug-fueled haze and just, you know, <laughs> <laughs> staggering about. And uh, <laughs> we're laughing, but I, I give Christy a little bit of credit for that. Not much, because we did give a four <laughs> to setting and tone. I don't think she really pulled it off. But yeah, I'm fine with Third Girl being a lot lower, actually, than it is. I don't have a ton of affection for this novel. I think that's fair. What would you deduct from here? Hercule Poirot is worthy of a seven in it. Isn't I think it's Ariadne, Ariadne Oliver. It's probably more for oh, Ariadne Oliver. Well, I was about to say, she's, she's more deserving of it. I would deduct marks from plot credibility. I think five is very generous. I'd, I'd lower both of those to four, if not three. The plot mechanics and plot credibility? Yeah. If we lower both of those to four, that brings this to 23, which would automatically put it underneath the mystery of the blue train and just ahead of the clocks in 50. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't argue with that. Would you? Okay. Yeah. Okay. I think that, I think that makes a lot of sense. Don't ever say I didn't give you anything on this episode. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm noting this. <laughs> <laughs> Keep this in mind as we get to uh, a, f- a few titles. Yes, that's in the near future. Doing. But you needn't, you needn't think they're sops that will make me change my mind about the ones that's coming <laughs> up. Because they won't work. Uh, our third girl is now in 54th place of 66. I think that's entirely appropriate. I actually think that the moving finger is a bit low. This is something that I've mentioned before. I think that Catherine yeah. and I were a bit harsh on that novel when we covered it. We've had many, many people write in actually and talk about their affection <laughs> and esteem for that book. I think that the book-specific characters deserve at least a six. With distance, I can say that they're very memorable and very well done, actually. At least, I agree. Okay. Setting Uh, and tone... Is only five for the movie. I, you're you're taking the words out of my mouth, John. I was about to say that I also would bump that up at least to a six. Would you not give it a seven? I mean, why would it lose four marks? See, you know, it, I usually I can remember why we rank <laughs> something a little lower, but I I couldn't tell you. So you know what? Seven it is. I can't if yeah. I can't defend my position, you're you're gonna win. So okay. let's give this That's three fine. points. That's twenty eight points. If it has 28, that means we actually have a lot of leeway here in terms of where we want to place it. We could put it anywhere from 35th place, which is where Nemesis sits, Uh, to 43rd place, which is the secret adversary. I think it should certainly be lower than Nemesis, A Pocket Full of Rye, Sleeping Murder, The Mirror Cracked from Side to Side. You, I'm sure, think it should be below one to Buckle My Shoe. But I think that it actually probably should be above the man in the brown suit in NRM. Yes, it should. Would you yeah, like me to put it above one, two, buckle my shoe? Uh, no. <laughs> Fine. <Thank you. laughs> Fine. All right. 
So I will be moving that up quite a few spots, actually. That will make many people happy. But I'm not just doing that merely because I've heard from so many of you. I actually agree with it. I think with some distance, The Moving Finger is a very effective Miss Marple novel. Okay, so The Moving Finger is now in 40th place. By the way, John, I just saw this in my notes. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to tell you this to horrify you completely. But I actually, apparently I wanted to move one, two book on my shoe down. I didn't even remember that. <laughs> Look at what, just again, I'm, I'm, I'm just being so flexible here. <laughs> All right, so let's move on now to our next batch here. I'm going to read out 45th through 55th place. Death in the Clouds, Murder is Easy, Murder in Mesopotamia, we've dealt with those. Then Dumb Witness, Halloween Party, By the Pricking of My Thumbs, At Bertram's Hotel, The Murder on the Links, The Mystery of the Blue Train, Third Girl, and The Clocks. I don't think I have any problem with any of those titles, with where any of those titles are. Well, I would like to see Murder on the Links a bit higher because it is a very clever story and it is a very clever detective story. I would think it's a lot better than Mystery of the Blue Train, which comes next to it. Agreed. And that's why it's it's just above it. It's funny, I've been speaking so much about my affection for certain titles. I have a distinct lack of affection for The Murder on the Links. I think that I'm cribbing this from Jamie Berntal, who tweeted this at some point, but... The Murder on the Links, even though it's technically Christie's third novel, it feels a little bit like sophomore novel syndrome. She had her big debut with Poirot in The Mysterious Affair at Styles, and there's something off for me about The Murder on the Links, but it is a very cleverly plotted mystery, mm -hmm. and I actually have no problem with it being higher than At Bertram's Hotel and By the Pricking of My Thumbs. Absolutely, yeah. And I think even Halloween Party, actually. I, oh, yeah, completely, I agree. What about Dumb Witness? Would you put it above well, Dumb Witness? I think I, I would put it below Dumb Witness. I know there are a lot of problems with Dumb Witness, but I have, a, to quote that awful word, I have quite a strong affection for Dumb Witness because it was one of the first Christies I ever read. Um, and I thought it was the bee's knees at the time. Clearly Look who is all warm and fuzzy here on yes. this, talking about your I, John Curran I, as a boy. <laughs> I didn't think you could catch fuzziness down the internet, but obviously you can. <laughs> all right, well, let's put, I agree with you, actually, that I think it, it belongs just below Dumb Witness. Okay. So it is now in 49th place. All right, let's move on to our bottom batch here. I'm going to read out 56 through 66. So our bottom 11 titles. In 56th place, Why Didn't They Ask Evans? Followed by The Seven Dials Mystery, Death Comes as the End, Destination Unknown, Passenger to Frankfurt, They Came to Baghdad, Hickory, Dickory, Dock, The Big Four, Elephants Can Remember, The Secret of Chimneys, and in dead last place, Postern, of fate. Since we're we're here in our final batch of titles, I, I'm fine with starting from the bottom. Do you disagree with Postern of Fate being our worst, Christy? No. I mean, I have to say, I think it should never have been published. It's a sad, well, it wasn't her, her curtain as it happened, but in theory, it was her curtain and it was, it should never have been published. And I blame Columns because they clearly didn't do any editing on it. Um, but there again, to go back to my point, it does begin with quite an intriguing idea. But she, again, mm -hmm. she had lost the power completely at that stage, sadly, to develop it. But I mean, that whole Mary Jordan did not die naturally. It was one of us. That is the essence of Agatha Christie. 
Oh yeah. Imagine what she would have done with that even 10 years earlier. I know. Absolutely. Yeah. So no, no argument there, but I do have a lot of arguments coming up, Kemper, I should warn you. All right. Start wherever you'd like, John. Well, I think Posturn of Fate is definitely the least good Christie. Mm -hmm. And the one that should come directly ahead of that is Passenger to Frankfurt. It makes no sense whatsoever. the, (laughs) the, The villain, in inverted commas, is plucked almost literally out of thin air. And all that nonsense in the airport. I mean, I know things were much easier in 1970 in airports. <laughs> but even that, agreeing to drink something handed to you by a total stranger and swap passports. I mean, it just... He's impulsive and audacious. Sir Stafford Knight, Sophie Hanna, I remember on that episode, she said, I absolutely believe that he would do that. No, I, I don't believe anyone would do it, not even in 1970. And of course, as the years have gone on, it becomes absolutely ludicrous. But the, the whole idea is just, it does, there is no idea behind it, really. And seemingly that is why they got Agatha Christie to write the foreword, the author's note, to mm-hmm. try to prepare the reader for it. I mean, <laughs> I always imagine, because this was her, her 80th book on her 80th birthday, I can imagine that the editors in Colin sat down and cried when they received the typescript. It's nonsensical. And I, I hate saying that, but I, you can't say otherwise. Agreed. I agree that it's mainly nonsensical. I do think Posture and a Fate is more nonsensical, oh, yes. right? Yes, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I think that elephants can remember is that even though it's not quite as nonsensical it's more frustrating to read because i think it comes slightly closer to being a christie puzzle mystery so that the experience of reading it almost feels as if you perhaps have dementia or you know are are just like having a hard time actually you know going from a to b to c as a reader and that's very disorienting and frustrating passenger to frankfurt is almost such a glorious mess that you can just you know skate along and not merrily but just just finish it which is why i i think the reading experience of elephants can remember for me was a lot worse and even they came to Baghdad as well. I found that to be really the least readable Christie. I was shocked by how much I disliked it. And that too, I think comes close to not making sense at several points. I mean, the, the mystery in it is just absurd. The, the blocking of what happens just doesn't make sense. Not forget on a puzzle level, but even just on a plot level, even though that's a mid career Christie, I just, I, I really have, nothing good to say about they came to Baghdad. Given how strongly you feel about Passenger Frankfurt, though, I'm okay bumping it down a bit. Second last. Well, (laughs) I don't know if I can say that it's a worse book overall than Elephants Can Remember or The Secret of Chimneys. How do you feel about The Secret of Chimneys, John? Oh, I don't think it deserves to be in second last place by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, as the list stands at the moment, um, the Secret of Chimneys is worse than Passenger to Frankfurt. That can't be right. <clears throat> I do disagree with you about The Came to Baghdad. It's not by any stretch her greatest thriller. But and my main problem is, is the villain is the person who invites Victoria out there in the first place, which is completely illogical. But mm-hmm. having said that, I think in many ways it's a rattling good read. It's not to be taken seriously. But again, it's a lot better in inverted commas, than Passenger to Frankfurt. 
Well, and it's interesting about the secret of chimneys because that too is not meant to be taken seriously. And that's very obvious when you start reading it. And I talked about how I think the man in the brown suit is the most successful of her carefree twenties adventure thrillers. I think the secret of chimneys is her least successful. You you can see what she was trying to do. And I, I think it's as, as though she falls flat on her face page after page, after page, after page. And a lot of that is due to the anti-Semitism. That is just, it's too thoroughly ingrained in the book to say that it's littered or scattered throughout the book, but it's just, it's just there time and time again. Well, that's why, is that why that got such a low mark? It is part because we we gave it six deductions for mm. depictions stuck in their time. So that's a big reason why The Secret of Chimneys is as low as it is. And also Hickory Dickory Dock. Obviously, Hickory Dickory Dock is a much higher functioning book than any of the other books, I think, in this yes. bottom 10. Mm. But we gave it a lot of deductions for depictions stuck in their well, time, even though she had the best of intentions <laughs> with what she was doing. But she just does not pull it off in that book. Well, we both know that we disagree on this completely. I'm willing to give a book the credit for the era in which it was written and where those now politically insensitive remarks were totally acceptable. So unless you're willing to expect the writer to project themselves a century forward, they're going to occur. And I I feel taking six or eight marks off for that is very unfair. But we're not going to argue about that because we're not going to see eye to eye on it. And there are many who hold your opinion, who are listeners to the podcast and who frequently get in touch with us. And I understand and respect that point of view. And it's why I've said this before, but it's worth repeating, especially on this episode. The depictions stuck in their time category is truly a category about reader experience. And this is a category that we felt we had to add to our rankings because the project of the podcast is to discuss what it's like reading Agatha Christie in 2016 or 2017 or 2018 or 2019 or 2020 or 2021 or 2022. And that is a snapshot of an experience. And that category is meant to be reflective of that snapshotted experience and not in any way a judgment on Christie. It is a judgment on our experience of reading the text, but I completely understand why you would leave that out. And there are many who agree with you, but that's the, you know, we made the decision to include it when we started the project. So in the case of Hickory Dickory Dock, eight, I think is savagely unfair because there are quite a lot of, quite a lot of good points about Hickory Dickory Dock. Um, I think that list of items that have been stolen or disappeared is so intriguing and so clever. Mm -hmm. And again, kind of an ABC murders plot device. But we're, we're not going to agree on this. We just have to agree to disagree. But I think for it to end up worse, worse than Passenger to Frankfurt is a sin crying out to heaven for vengeance, as the saying goes. <laughs> well, fortunately, John, I agree with you on that point. I think that Passenger to Frankfurt should certainly be below Hickory Dickory right. Dock. And I think it should actually be below... Elephants can remember as well. I'm going to hold off on putting it below the secret of chimneys, which has been our bet noir on this podcast. I am actually going to be revisiting the secret of chimneys. This had become a long running joke between me and Catherine that we were going to reread the secret of chimneys to see if it really was as bad as we experienced it 
when we first read it for the podcast. And I've already begun contextualizing my read to give The Secret of Chimneys its full due. I have just finished reading The Prisoner of Zenda, which, as we know, is a Christie favorite, a book that she grew up on and had a lot of affection for. And this was on the advice of a listener, actually, who said, I think that if you read The Prisoner of Zenda and then immediately reread The Secret of Chimneys, you might have a little bit more of an understanding of what she was at least going for and trying to do. And it might be helpful. So I have taken that advice and I am going to reread The Secret of Chimneys very shortly with as much goodwill as I can muster for that execrable title. And uh, perhaps it shall rise in the rankings, but I cannot in good conscience do so now. But I can at least promise you that I will uh, give it its due when I reread. That's fair enough. It's wrong, but it's fair enough, yeah. Well, let's uh, bump down Passenger to Frankfurt then. We need to lop off four points. And I'm not completely sure why we gave it a seven for setting and tone. That seems a bit ludicrous right now. Very generous. (laughs) I think we could at least give it a five, which would lop off two points there. And perhaps a three for plot mechanics would be in order. And you know what? Let's go ahead and give it a four for setting a tone. I really don't don't know why we we thought that a seven was appropriate. No, How do you feel seven. about that? No, I agree. Okay. So that one will make it second to last, will it? Well, it's going to make it third to last for right oh, now. But yeah. I will I I will will be revisiting the secret of chimneys, and I'll let I'll let you know. Um, okay. And I I have a feeling it will be rising a bit because I think that it probably is unfair that it's as as low as it is. But I just remember being absolutely horrified by that book. But you were obviously more horrified by Hickory Dickory Dock. Yes, yes. Well, we Hickory Dickory Dock has just risen one since Passenger to Frankfurt is now below it. So that should... I know, uh, I'm just looking at the eight deductions of eight, where yeah. you had deducted six from Secret of Chimneys. So you must have thought Hickory Dickory Dock was worse again. I do. I think it's I think when it comes to depictions stuck in their time, there's no book that is worse than Hickory Dickory Dock. Secret of Chimneys comes close. And I think by far those are the two books that have the most deductions. Nemesis actually has four and Curtain also has four. And the man in the brown suit has seven deductions as well. Why does Curtain have four now that I look at it? Well, Curtin has a lot of issues as to ableism, all of the hijinks of Poirot pretending that he can't walk and some other questionable points of view that feel as though they very well may be endorsed by Christie in the book, which, of course, is always a little bit of a game that we have to play as readers. I have always tried to safeguard against ascribing to Christie anything that she's putting in the mouths of characters. We, you know, of course, don't want to do that. So she deserves the benefit of the doubt uh, to a large extent. But I think we can't always give her the benefit of the doubt either. I actually also interestingly had a listener contact me recently about the man in the brown suit. And he was from South Africa and and telling me that there is a term that is used over and over again in the man in the brown suit that is actually an extremely offensive term in South Africa that makes it particularly difficult to read if you are a South African. So I didn't even know about that. And um, I had been thinking that you know, the seven deductions there is a lot, but I'm not going to change that, I think, given that viewpoint that he provided. And I'm also happy with where the man in the brown suit is right now. So I don't think we really have to toy with that. But 
hopefully the pa- passenger to Frankfurt being in third to last place is a bit more palatable to you, John. Oh, it is. And possibly that may change when you reread Secret of Chimneys. Secret of Chimneys, yes. I have a feeling, I, I don't want to promise anything, but I have a feeling that the Secret of Chimneys very well may rise above mm-hmm. at least they came to Baghdad and perhaps up into somewhere around the seven dials mystery and why didn't they ask Evans, but let's talk about why didn't they ask Evans? Because I know that you feel this book is ranked too low. I'm absolutely outraged at its its ranking. (laughs) I mean, as it stands on the one that I've got before you did your change, it's 66 out of 66. So it's our 10th worst book. How on earth did you arrive at that conclusion? (laughs) Plot credibility is three. Fortunately for you, John, we just had this Hugh Laurie Britbox adaptation of Why Didn't They Ask Evans, which came out. I, I, you, I'm sure you watched it since you watch everything, yes. right? Yeah. yeah, I thought it was quite good. Um, there, yeah. there, you know, there were some departures from the text which mm-hmm. I might not but have made, but for, in the greatest, for the most part, minor ones, right? I agree. I thought it was excellent. The best TV adaptation for a long time. It forced me to revisit our podcast episode in which we reviewed Why Didn't Ask Evans. And I felt, after listening back to the podcast episode, so I did this within the last month or two, I felt that we were way too harsh on this number. So I think that I would have been resistant to everything you're saying right now, but but I'm not. Because it is one of the more... I don't have the same affection for it that I do for The Man in the Brown Suit, but I think it is one of her more successful thrillers. And it also... And this is what struck me. It has a lot of her puzzle-making craft inserted into it. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you give plot credibility, you give it three... And you give Merge on the Orient Express eight. Now, I'm not oh, yeah. arguing with Merge on the Orient Express, but are you saying that, um, or at least you did say, that why didn't they ask Evans is that much worse from plot credibility? Well, yes, because why didn't they, because Murder on the Orient Express doesn't have someone literally crashing through the ceiling to just clean up all of the sort of plot holes and save the day. It's almost literally a, like a deus ex machina when, when Badger oh, just... That's only, that's only one minor scene. <laughs> I I guess I don't know. It gets a little. I think it gets very cartoony at the end. Well, no, I disagree because I think first of all, the why didn't they ask Evans bit of it? I'd say not one reader in a thousand ever ever considers that Evans is a female. Yep. And where Evans is actually living during the story, that mm-hmm. is a complete surprise. Although it's not prepared in any way by Christie. My mystery about why didn't they ask Evans, and I think when we, when we met earlier this year, we discussed this, is why it isn't a Tommy and Tuppence novel. And I have a very strong suspicion, and that's all it is at the moment, despite having done some research, I strongly suspect she wrote it in the 20s. Oh. Because in 1934, she published four crime books, and that was one of them. So it would make much more sense if she had written it some years earlier. And it also has, to me, the vibe, which was a word Agatha Christie was very familiar with, <laughs> of the 1920s with the bright young things and the flappers. It does. It absolutely does. But uh, all that is made, I think it's a hugely readable book with a very clever plot, which completely takes the reader by surprise when you get the answer. I agree. I completely agree. I think this is uh, mea culpa. I think this is way too low. 
it's so clever that Evans was where we started, right? Like that's, and it has that, it has that Christy flair of obviousness when we're on the yeah. other side of it, like, Oh, of course. And of course, why didn't I ever think that Evans could be a female, especially because servants often are called by their last names. But even with that, it's still just not obvious. And somehow she manages to pull the wool over our eyes and the, the fizzy chemistry between our would be Beresford's um, really, really works. And well, yeah, yeah also, it's, it's good. You know what it was called in the U S no. What was it called in the U S which is a com- when you look at it, stand back and look at it. It's a com- oh, the boomerang clue. clue. The boomerang clue, right? Boomerang clue, which yes. is ex- exactly you said there yourself a minute ago. Oh, because um, it comes. You know, I think that we actually asked that question aloud when we covered why is it called the boomerang clue in the U.S. And I think we didn't get it, but of course that's why. Go bit right back yeah. to yeah, that's clever. So um, we're bumping it up by about forty marks, are we? <laughs> so it's going to be in, in the top ten. <laughs> okay, I can listen to that. <laughs> no, I think it certainly deserves to be at least a good 10, if not more places bumped up. I I think it can be among those top ranked thriller titles. So somewhere around where the man in the brown suit and NRM are ranked, actually, I think it deserves to be well, there. So, Well, at least, I mean, I think it's a much better book than the man in the brown suit or even well, NRM. I would put it in the top half. Wow. For you, it's the best thriller. Oh, absolutely, without a question. The best yeah. Thriller. My argument, I'm not going to argue for affection, but again, and, and I've said this already, <laughs> I think, but I think that the, I think there, and I, and I would, I would guess that your reason why is because it is incorporating these Christie-ish puzzle elements into a thriller that works. And I think yeah. that you really can make the same argument for the man in the brown suit, because I think she's doing in that, you know, Sir Eustace Pedler is a, a part narrator and we see, you know, the proto Roger Ackroyd thing going on. And even just like the, you know, the clues of hearing someone speak, but does that actually mean that they're there? There's a lot of puzzle mystery-ish hijinks happening in the man in the brown suit so i i think and and then it it edges out for me i suppose just based on affection which is really coming through though the narrative voice of ann bedingfeld i think she's just a very successful and unusual narrator for christy because she didn't often do the first person female narrator i think it's just ann and amy leatherin in the canon i think that's it so for me that's why the man in the brown suit edges it out but you could certainly uh make the argument that it should be why didn't they ask evans that is why i'm going to bump it up a lot but not over the man in the brown suit with apologies john let's see very sincere apology i have to say (laughs) well we we need to award it seven points a whopping seven points here yeah let's see plot mechanics is ridiculously low you're right about that I think it should be a a six though. I don't, I don't think it should be a seven per se, but it should at least be a six. So that's two points there. And the plot credibility is rather low as well. I think we can give it two more points there. So that's a six and a five. We now have to do three more points. I think the setting and tone is actually really low, right? It is. I was just going to say that it is very low. I think we could give it all the other three points in setting and tone. I think that the characters are probably the weakest part of the book, even though the chemistry between the characters is good. It's not oh, like it's those. Very good. Yeah, it's Frankie very is, good. A, and Frankie is a great character too. Frankie has oh, so many great lines. Absolutely. Yeah. And have you seen the original TV version of that with Francesca Annis? Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's, That's great. Sublime. Yes. Who played uh, Tommy? James Warwick. Is he in the Why Didn't They Ask Evans as well with Francesca Annis or is it someone else? No, he's in it. 
he is in it as well. Yeah. So it's, it's the two of them. I mean, that's also why probably it, it feels like such a Tommy and Tuppence. I mean, they of course went on to do Tommy and Tuppence, right? And do you want the nerdy detail? Yes, please. It was released originally. This will tell you how long ago it was released on video because it was the first Christie to be televised in latter years. That's why Rosalind gave permission to do that one because she didn't want to give one of the Poirot's or Marcos. So mm-hmm. they settled on they asked Evans. But it was released on DVD, on video. And then many years later, it was released on DVD with 22 extra minutes. Oh, really? Yes. Now, this is where it gets really nerdy. I checked and there is almost nothing significant because I, I put the video in the video player, the DVD in the DVD player, I switched on the TV and then alternated between them to see how much ahead one got than the other. But the only things that happened were some scenes that were shortened were elongated in the 20 extra minutes version. But there was nothing, you didn't miss anything significant. But if you're a completist, you need both versions of it. Wouldn't wow, you John. That's the Agatha Christie nerd version of starting the Wizard of Oz and playing Dark Side of the Moon backward or whatever so that they, they line up. That is some commitment right there. And I know I should be embarrassed and ashamed, but I'm not. You should not. And especially on this podcast. In fact, I am sure that there are, there is someone listening to this who is going to go out and do that exact exercise. And, well, it, and it might be me. <laughs> now would be to get a video version of it. That's right. And to, and to have a VCR. Well, that's true. And to have a VCR. Yeah. <laughs> Why didn't they ask Evans now has 28 points, which means that we need to figure out exactly where it goes. The question is, do you put it Above or below, they do it with mirrors and the secret adversary. Above. I agree with that. Okay. The only other thing I just wanted to note, John, in closing here, is that there is one other title, which you did not mention, surprisingly, that is very, very controversial in that many of our listeners think it is ranked way too low. And that would be Death Comes as the End. You took the words out of my mouth. I'm sitting here looking at it. I'm thinking that's a disgrace. (laughs) You're not alone. And I'm actually thrilled to report, I'm not going to embarrass him by saying who it was who gave me this wonderful, wonderful gift, but I was recently given a first edition copy of Death Comes as the End by a listener. That was his passive aggressive way of encouraging me to re-reread Death Comes as the End. So I suppose I'm going to have to now since I'm, I can do it off of my first edition copy. And after The Secret of Chimneys, that is another one that I'm going to revisit. But it sounds as though you agree that this one perhaps should be uh, bumped up a bit in the rankings. It should be bumped up a bit. Now, I would be the first to admit, as a detective novel, it doesn't work because you really don't have any clues to arise. Again, it should be just instinct as to how to identify the villain. But I think it's a really noble experiment. It's one of the earliest examples of the historical detective story, and they don't get much more historical than 4,000 years ago. So I think it was such a, a risk, if you like, for her to take, and I think she carried it off magnificently. I had such a horrible time reading that book, but that could have been me. So it deserves a second chance and it will get a second chance, which is part of the reason that this podcast will never end. But you are also part of that reason. And in closing, I don't know if I've ever actually asked you this, and I'm embarrassed to say I'm not sure that I know the answer to this question, but I always have to ask anyone who comes on this podcast before I let them go who they prefer, Poirot or Marple. And what is your answer? Well, you don't, you, want, you don't want to hear my answer, I'm afraid. 
Oh, I do. I I think this episode has shown that I have I, I have no fear of uh, disagreement. <laughs> <laughs> As long as you're the final arbiter. Exactly. It's Hercule Poirot, but it's also Hercule Poirot for the practical reason that if you're taking your your favourite character to a desert island, Mm. you've got three times as many books than if you choose Miss Marple. That's an excellent answer. And do you have a desert island Christie, by the way? I mean, we know that you believe Five Little Pigs is the best Christie that there is, and you're correct in that opinion. That, but would, that would be my desert island Christie, and has been would. for a long time. Yeah. And I should also make the point, um, and it goes back to a theme running through this conversation over the last two hours, Kemper. Um, <laughs> I would also prefer Poirot because they're much more detective stories. I mean, quite often, Miss Marple, wonderful though she is, I hasten to add, plucks the solution out of thin air. And unless she had divine inspiration, for instance, there's no way she can possibly know who committed the murder on the 450 to Paddington. Yes, divine or infernal inspiration. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. So the answer is, is definitely Poirot. That is a very thorough answer. I expected nothing less from you and backed up with uh, all sorts of hard facts and evidence. And I think that that is fair. It, it really is true. I don't, I don't think I appreciated that she's almost always doing something different with the marbles than she does in the Poirots. But that range is something that I think I have come to appreciate when it comes to the oeuvre overall. Well, John, this exceeded my expectations and my expectations really were sky high for having you on and actually being able to hear you and speak with you and have everyone else hear you. I appreciate all of the time, the many, many hours you just gave to me and to everyone else in this final state of the rankings. It was very important to, I think, have just a a really uh, in-depth discussion about where the rankings lie now that I am setting them in stone. And I'm so glad that you could be a part of that. Oh, and thank you for asking me to be. As you know from when we met earlier this year, I could talk about Christy indefinitely. <laughs> we have that in common. <laughs> yes, we do. I thoroughly enjoyed every minute of it. And you were very gracious in, in agreeing to some of my suggestions, shall we say. Thank you, John. Thank you again to John Curran. Third time truly was a charm. It really is a dream come true that I was finally able to have John on the podcast to share his wisdom and expertise with all of us in dialogue. He has already done that through Agatha Christie's Secret Notebooks, which I just cannot stop quoting from time and time again. But it was such a treat to have him on and to interact with him live and in person in that way. I hope you all enjoyed that. I certainly did. It is the end of the year. I hope that if you are celebrating holidays, you all have happy, happy holidays. We're getting to that time when it becomes appropriate to say Happy New Year until we all become sick of saying Happy New Year. I will be putting out an episode in two weeks time just before we switch over to 2023. And that interview will be with the author Maureen Johnson, who has written a mystery series featuring the teenaged detective Stevie Bell. This is actually one of my favorite new series that I have discovered recently. They are puzzle mysteries. They are funny. They are so Christie-esque in so many different ways and just infused with a lot of the Christie magic that we all love. So I'm very, very excited to introduce Maureen to some of you. 
And for those Stevie Bell fans who may already exist, there is a new standalone mystery of Maureen's that is coming out at the end of the year. We will be discussing that mystery, which is called Nine Liars. It comes out on December 27th. Feel free to pre-order it now. I'm so grateful for all of you, this wonderful listening audience who write me such thoughtful messages about everything under the sun when it comes to reading Agatha Christie. Please keep those messages coming. I would love to hear from you at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. You can also contact the podcast via social media. We're on Twitter at allaboutthedame and on Instagram at allaboutagatha. If you're hankering to give me a little gift, then give me the gift of a rating and or a review. That will always be appreciated at any time of year, but perhaps especially this time of year. And I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.